Hi, everyone. Welcome to Office Hours. If you're watching on YouTube, you can find out more about what we do at officehours.global. Our first hour is general discussion about digital production of all kinds. Uh, second hour is usually something we want to spend uh, a little bit more time on. And today, we're very excited to have the Zoom team. Andy Carluccio, Jonathan Cocatello, and Sam Kakaiko will be here to talk about Zoom and production and answer your questions. So we're really excited to have them here in the second hour. It's always a good second hour when they're here. So uh, get those questions in about produ producing with Zoom and... Uh, We'll have them on uh, soon. So let's go ahead and jump into the questions. Mitchell, what do we have? First in is Alex 4D Golner from London, England, with the newly announced Mac Mini with M2 Pro. Do you think Apple would do in the Blade server market an XServe for 2023? Do you think they'll ever allow multiple users running on Mac OS at the same time? Good, Jason. To my knowledge, the only way to do this historically has been with Apple Remote Desktop. Um, I think there are some ways to do it in command line, but I haven't tried on the M1, so good question. I'd be surprised. <laughs> I'd be surprised if they go down this path, mostly just because it's not a real focus for them. I think that, that going into the enterprise market was not a particularly successful foray for Apple. And so I, them going back to that would probably be uh, probably not something that I would expect. Uh, go ahead, David. Yeah, even so, I don't believe the XServe back in its day was a multi-user kind of thing. It was more for managing of accounts, uh, giving permissions to apps and stuff like that. So it wasn't really a true multi-user, like a like a Windows X. Yeah, it never felt that way. <laughs> that it was really really that replacement code, Mitchell. If they do that, can I bring my XServe RAID back out of storage? I had two of those. I had two big XServe RAID. You know, it it required the XServe. I, I needed an XServe RAID to capture 444 off of a camera because it had to do 180 megabytes a second um, and uh, megabytes. So still pretty fast even by today's, you know, it's over 500 megabits a second. Um, but it had to do 180 megabytes a second. Now you can get, you know, the thumb drives that will do that. Uh, go ahead, Alex. Yeah, I mean, considering a Mac Mini, you can rack mount these now, and you've got companies like Mac Mini Cola that have been around for years, so you, can, you don't even have to necessarily buy a Mac Mini. You can just sign up for an account, and you can have a Mac hosting uh, platform there. So I, I, don't think, <laughs> I don't think it really makes sense. Especially when you think about the power that you have in a Mac Mini Pro, the one that just came out, and the fact that you can put two of those in a 1U unit and then start stacking them up. I think that you, you, it's an incredible amount of horsepower. I could definitely see using that as a, you know, render farm, you know, to, to build those, th those kinds of things out. Now, next question. Jack Cannon from Phoenix, Arizona asking, looking for a mobile production screen for use with a Mac Mini and an ATEM on a cart. Go ahead, Jason. Every time I've done this uh, in the past, I've used, it's probably not the best solution, but the SmartView 4K racks up really nicely. So that's that's my vote. Good, Chris? Uh, Jack, only because I know what you're working on. I would really look at some of these low-cost, because I know you're going to beat this thing up. Um, I would look at some of these low-cost LCD ones uh, the, that have the Visa mount, because I think a Visa mount would work good in the way you're doing it. And I wouldn't worry about like having you know the greatest resolution and most perfect color rendition you, one you're outdoors you're not going to see all that you just need to have a kind of a confidence to make sure you have a signal um and i wouldn't spend i don't think i'd spend more than about 350 for a monitor like that maybe even less go ahead courtney I didn't interpret the question correctly, but I was going to suggest something like this. This is the AO Fun 15-inch monitor, and you'll notice it's wafer thin, 
And it has a USB-C connector on the side and a mini HDMI, and you can switch between the two, and the USB-C can provide it power and video signal from a Mac uh, mini, so that might be handy to have. And since it's flat, I put some uh, command strips on the back, and I stick it to a homemade uh, VESA mount, and it works quite well. Good guy. Yeah, there's a brand that we found on Amazon. I, I do like, to Jason's point, the, the SDI versions of the Blackmagic. I beat those up in Gator cases and toss them around on a lot of shows. But the one that we've settled on, which is cheap, but you got to be a little bit more careful with it. Uh, Tucker and I have been using this one because it's got the Visa mount on the back. Um, so this is Uperfect 17-inch 4K, and then it's got the full-size HDMI and it'll run off a USB. So I'll put a link in the chat to that one. It's a pretty sweet monitor. And David? And again, razor thin. Yeah, the other to Chris's point too, and knowing kind of knowing what Jack's looking for, there's a, a True View monitors, T R U V U monitors. They make a sunlight readable monitors, which might be more applicable for uh, your your gig. Good, Mitchell. Yeah, I'm with David. I think you need at least two thousand nits if you're going to take it outside to be able to see it properly. Let's go to the next question. Next question is from Stefan Fischer in Wurzburg, Germany. My Stream Deck software regularly and silently stops working after a while since the update to Ventura. Any ideas? Chris? Yeah, Stefan. So literally, I think it was just yesterday, um, I went to power up my system. I actually shut everything down every night, and I launched the ATEM software, and it just spun uh, nothing. And I did it probably five times and i was like Ugh, i don't know what to do and i got i i logged into the back end to talk to the guys to get onto the show and i said to them i said hey any any ideas anybody seen this happen and they and i can't remember who it was but they had some very heroic solution like reinstall your os i was like no nah, i'm not gonna do that and i launched it the, the sixth time and it and it worked fine so uh, I think there might be a problem uh, because I've never, like it's the most stable, most friendly, most reliable piece of software I've seen in a long time. Uh, there might be something with Ventura. I don't know. You go, Jason. I think it needs some additional permissions. I would blow away the app and then go into your library file and um, and then under application support, um, actually blow away the the Stream Deck. Uh, by the way, back it up before you do this. Reboot and try to install the app clean. Uh, my guess is that the background um, kind of system helper part of it is just getting stuck. Stefan? Yeah, I just wanted to refer to Chris because he was talking about an ATEM software. And I'm a, I meant the Elgato Stream Deck software, the original You're one, right. which I comes that. from I the supplier. Let's go to the next question. Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herdename, Germany. Uh, the left angle software, the new motion design and visual effects software with USDZ based 3D environment and collaboration cloud service built in. Your thoughts? It looks really cool. We should definitely have these guys on. <laughs> That's what I was looking at it. I, I haven't seen it before uh, this was posted, and I looked through it, and it looks it looks like a really cool platform they have. I mean, these are relatively, you know, from from you know what a lot of people are used to. There's there's a monthly fee, or you can buy it outright. Um, they can get as expensive as uh, I think if you buy it outright, it's four hundred dollars for autograph, um, and then there's an I think a more a bigger one or art, artisan and autograph that is a little more expensive. Um, they have some monthly fees as well. It looks like a, a 3D compositing environment. 
Um, it, it does support USD, not USDZ, um, which is not that big of a deal. You can usually export to both of those things. Um, but it would be really interesting to see. The big thing when you see that I'm gonna, we're going to support USDZ or USD is how it renders the what, what you're going to look at when you look at their demos. How does it render the edges? So long, long things that are at an angle, <laughs> do they have any kind of stair-stepping, any aliasing that goes on? That's usually where the 3D renderer falls down is that they don't alias well because they don't oversample. And so uh, how it manages oversampling and whether the, the graphics processes are capable of doing it. It's just that people haven't been, you know, uh, well, graphics processors made in the last year <laughs> you know, are able to do uh, that oversampling uh, in real time. Uh, so, uh, so hopefully we'll see, we'll see uh, what they do, but we'll, we'll, I'll do some more research and maybe we'll get them on. Next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana, had a project I really wanted to do fall through. The nonprofit doing it didn't get the grant, but I'd still love to do the project, but now they want to crowdfund it and I'm leery of having my name and company name attached. Opinions? There you go, Jason. This is one of these cases where dialogue is is kind of key. I would reach out to them and say, look, you know, if you have a structured way of crowdfunding this and you can meet, you know, these certain budgetary goals, um, you know, then I'd like to go ahead with it. But until then, I'd, I'd, I'd like to be separate from it just purely for my own brand integrity. Something along those lines, I think, is the way to do this. Yeah, I wouldn't put my name connected to a crowdfunded thing by a nonprofit. Like it just, especially if they couldn't turn the corner to, to fund it, I, I just... I would, if if they get the funding and you can do the project or they have enough to cover what you're doing, um, I would then want, I'll donate some time, I'll donate whatever is necessary, you know, whatever I'm going to do in return for being able to use the footage, being able to do PR, having my name up on it. But I know that they won't like that. But I think putting your name on something that is that unstable would not be, not be a good step forward. Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, I totally agree. There's a real beauty to having those kind of relations, relationships be purely transactional. It's just, you know, hey, you guys go get the money. When you got the money, let me know. And Chris, if you're really interested in it, there's a lot of ways that you can participate or lower their barrier to entry to still make it so that, um, you know, you're you're able to, uh, to work on the project. I know that uh, right before COVID, I was working with a guy who was doing a really a really meaningful piece. It was, um, it was to raise awareness about, um, child trafficking in Northern California specifically. And he had a, a very unreasonable budget and a little, a, a bit of production experience. And he had what I advised him to do because he was, his personal computer was very old and decrepit. I said, look at, here's what I'm going to recommend you do. Take your post budget, and buy a new computer. I will teach you Final Cut. I will teach you how to string together all your clips and sound bites. And then once you've got 90% of the work done, I'll just polish it up for you. And it turned out to be, it wasn't a heavy lift on my time. I got to help him out. The piece went over well, but, and he ended up with a computer for it. But um, the amount of money that he had wouldn't have even come close to the post that was going to be involved. So it worked out really well for everybody. Next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany, asking, my Link webcam controller lowers the resolution every now and then to 1280 by 720. Seems to happen after a new launch of the app. Do others observe that as well? 
I have not seen that. So, Stefan, does it hap- ever happen after you've restarted it? Does it keep on happening, or is it just when you start it, it comes up at a lower resolution? I I think it happens uh, when I when I start it, uh, start the software. So, power up mm-hmm. the system, start all the apps to get online, and then see what what does this resolution mean? So, and did you save the settings, or did you save anything? You have it saved. Yeah, and, normally. And so you, yeah, and I always I I have a. a uh, an office hours button for yeah. the right framing and stuff like that. So this should contain <laughs> yeah. the resolution. That's um, great. Yeah, but this kind of seems to fall back. Yeah. Stefan, on my A10, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I, I've been playing with it as well. Um, mine's doing the same. Uh, uh, what am I trying to say? Mine's behaving properly. I launch it and it stays at the 1920 but what's curious, and I say this all the time about anybody having any problem with a computer, everything affects everything. And so the fact that you're having trouble with your Stream Deck, not your ATEM, uh, and this, what else is going on? Is it possible that some of these things are uh, interconnected somehow? Keep thinking in those terms. Uh, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Here's an out of the box thought. I don't know if you have. Are you plugging into a laptop that may already have a 720p camera as its webcam internally? Because maybe the internal software is when it boots up, sees that 720p uh, camera and sets its input for a webcam to 720p, and then when you start your uh, uh, Link 360, it tries to comply with what the software is requesting. Maybe that's an idea. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, Stefan, do you have anything else running or is it just, if you do, a, and it doesn't happen all the time, it just happens some of the time? I'm not quite sure. It just uh, started happening two or three days ago. So, uh, and so it's I, been working fine for a while. Start, okay, huh? so it's been, yeah, it's been working absolutely. fine. Yeah. And then two or three days ago, something happened, right? Now, did you do a, did you do a OS? Yeah, it upgrade? was together with the Ventura update, I guess. Ah, now we have, now, now we have more evidence here. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it, it might've actually been the butler in the, in the library. And so yeah. the, um, so the, uh, so we did a Ventura update and since Ventura, it's been doing this random thing. So before yeah, that, it was they, not, I think that, yeah. that I think they, they're going to end up updating it, but I would definitely report it back to them, you know, uh-huh. go to support and let them know that it's happening. So it's, they start to see that that might be a case, be the case, but I think it's probably connected to Ventura and it probably has a, a library that needs to get updated. <laughs> so, so uh, to something that's not now requesting what it was. Um, so that, that, okay. That's, that, that makes more sense. Next question. Okay. Paul Terry Wallace from Austin, Texas is here. How do you get a Mac to reboot without requiring a login to get up and running? Go ahead, Jason. On a modern Mac, you go to system preferences and then users and groups. The got you here is that if you have FireVault enabled, you won't be able to do this. So you have to turn that off and then reboot, and then you'll have automatically login as right below all of your uh, users. Go ahead, David. And once you have that set up remotely, you tell that to that machine and issue the reboot command and that'll get you going nice good guy yeah i was having this issue too because uh, some of us use some software that allows us to move the mouse from one computer to the other and you couldn't log in and so um yeah there jason and, and uh david got it right it's right there in their users and groups and then it'll say automatically log in as and you'll have the prompt there but be aware that if somebody physically has access to that machine they will they can take it now uh, and do whatever they want to it so just be aware that uh there's no more password no more lock on it so 
be used with Limit. caution. Don't have it checking your email. <laughs> you know, so the uh, how I just, tangential question here: uh, How is the new Ventura control panels? How do how do how do people like those? Do you, do you like those guys? The new ones, the new layout instead of the pictures and the things that we've had for the since OS ten started. It's just weird. It's we've had it so long yeah. the other way, and now. But I will say this. I search for everything because I can't find it. I know, I know. I, I do the same thing. I've gotten really good at searching because it, it's just it. I find it very, very difficult to figure out where I'm at. You know, I really like the fact that that you know maybe in the next version of Mac OS they won't mess with the icons, which always messes with me. You know, in prior years, so yeah. th- I'm all for it. Excellent. I, I would love them if they if they sorted them alphabetically. That's my only thing. Yeah. It would be nice. Yeah, that, yeah, absolutely. Uh, next question. From John Preto in Las Vegas. Uh, John says, uh, I hear that Adobe will be integrating generative AI into Photoshop, Illustrator, Audition, Premiere, and their 3D apps. Thoughts? Good, John. So I'm hearing that that they're going to put generative AI in, in the apps, which makes complete sense. If if I can get my mid-journey artwork into layers into Photoshop or vector or 3D and then generative audio into addition. It's going to be interesting to see what happens in this battle moving forward. Hey, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, I was going to say it would be interesting to see since most of the AI art generators are generating bitmaps, whether how they would get a stroke based like Illustrator image in or a multi-layered image like Photoshop multi-layers. But I'm uh, looking forward anxiously. Full disclosure, I am a shareholder in Adobe. <laughs> yeah, the um, uh, I, I think that you're going to see it in all the art programs. In fact, I think eventually you're going to see it in your word processing programs. ChatGPT will just be something that just, you know, you say, well, write this, par- write a paragraph about this, you know, and then you'll look at that. Well, write, write another paragraph about this. Write me a whole pa- paper. You're going to see this stuff just kind of added as an assistant to everything you're doing. I can imagine sitting inside of Photoshop and just going, I need a picture of a, of a you know, and, and again, right now, there's kind of this guessing game with mid-journey that we all do to try to get the image that we want. But we could say, you know, I want a statue of Abraham Lincoln right here, you know, and then rotate that 30 degrees, rotate that this way, rotate it, you know, light it from over here. And you're going to start being able to direct it and those things will just kind of pop in and be what you want it to be. Um, and and I think that it's going to change everything about how we composite things. And, and eventually that's going to be sitting inside of Blender. It's going to be sitting inside of Maya, Cinema 4D. You say, give me a 3D model of this now. That's a long way away. Like I just want to make sure, like it's to do it. To do it a little bit is not very far away. A year or two. To do it really well is a decade away. You know, because the real trick to building some of this stuff is is how do you manage all the little edges? We see that Mid Journey right now has trouble with fingers. <laughs> fingers are complicated, and glasses are hard for it to figure out. It'll figure those out in the next year. But how does it build a three D model of those things um, and actually let you move those around and and again be able to do it from frame to frame? So when I ask you to change it, it now has to do the same thing but move it. So it has to have more understanding of what that object is. Right now, it's just kind of recompiling, you know, from a lot of different images that it that it has. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, to put that in perspective, remember when QuickTime first came out, it was a postage stamp-sized animation or uh, video, and it was amazing. And, of course, now we would look, we would frown upon that. So I think that uh, it's got a long way to go, but uh, it's certainly going to get there. Hey, go, John. So the CEO of, of MidJourney has his own office hours every Wednesday, and he talks he talks about the, the roadmap of what they're doing. And 
And I guess when it first came out, they couldn't do faces. And then everybody's talking about the hands. It was really funny. Uh, <laughs> Sasha Nutella was at uh, Davos this weekend. He already announced that they're integrated into the office suite and Bing both. And so that's going to happen. I'm seeing some really interesting um, alpha work where they're tweening um, some mid-journey stuff. So you take one image and then you take a sub and then it's doing some tweening stuff that looks really promising as well. That's something I'm really interested in of it, of it taking, like I created this image of this image, or even if I create two Im images from the same command and I'm like, I just want you to blend these two together. And I think eventually you're going to get to a point where you can highlight things going, I want this part of this image and this part of this image. And I want, you know, that, that type of thing. Yeah. Go ahead, Chris. You know, uh, Mitchell, you mentioned early QuickTime. Uh, I was shown QuickTime uh, months before it was released and the little, the little thing and I said to the guy and, and I say this by way of how to interpret uh, things that I say I said to the guy this is stupid it will never be anything <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I and I saw it I remember seeing it early on and I someone showed me a quick time um, looping this was probably you know very early on and I was like this is the end of TV <laughs> you know, so that, that gives you the two ends, you know, like I just, and they were like, it's, it's, it's 160 by There's 120. There's a reason like, why Alex Lindsay be. is Alex Lindsay and I am me. Yes, I literally, I sure. literally, my entire life flashed before my, the, the next 30 years flashed before my eyes when I saw 160 by 120, I was like, well, it won't be 160 by 120 forever. <laughs> you know, so, so, and, and then after that, it'll be over. Uh, next question. Next one in from Alexander Knight on uh, from Vancouver, BC, Canada. Since the ATEM does not accept 4K signals, should I use an HDMI matrix so I can run my cameras at native 4K resolution and then later downscale to 1080p? I've heard this can improve image quality. Good, David. I've been looking at HDMI matrixes and they can get pricey depending on requirements. What I would do would be... Um, Use the mini cross converter, the Blackmagic mini cross converter, to get it from four to to ten eighty would be probably more cost effective. I think more cost effective. I think that the the um, if you did do it with the HDMI matrix, I think what you'd end up with is lower latency because it's really designed to have to pass that at a low latency. You might have a frame or two when you do a, some of the other, and it may still have that as well. So you may still lose a frame or two on the way through. They'll all be the same if you go through the same converter. So then they'll all match up and all you got to do is figure out your delays for that um but the the big advantage is being able to record at, at 4k usually i mean i don't i mean i think that because you, you, you're cutting on the show i don't know if you really if you're and, and alex what what uh cameras are you using i'm using the panasonic lumix fz 300 so it's their point and shoot bridge series right. cameras yeah i mean I, I think that i don't think you're going to buy much quality going from you know going through something to convert it unless there's some processing that you're doing on the way through so if you're just taking 1080p out of those cameras i think it'll look about the same of what it's doing you want to kind of look into the cameras and know whether it's subsampling the sensor or it's scaling the in in the camera so when you do a 1080p output but record in 4k is it taking every other pixel or is it so and, and the reason i say that is like the black magic 12k when you go to a lower resolution in the 12k it's actually subsampling that that sensor, you know, and that's actually not great. <laughs> you know, like they're, they're very excited about it. it. Doesn't take as much processing speed, but the problem with that is, is that 
you're you're actually there's actually gaps, and so you can see some aliasing on some things because of that. And so, but you're probably not seeing that with Panasonic. I bet you the Panasonic is actually scaling it down. So, so you shouldn't see any dramatic change. The only caveat to that is if you're pulling something like a green screen or you're doing something else like that live, you'd really be better off trying to process that at 4K and then bring it down as opposed to processing it at 1080p if you can avoid it. Uh, next question. Eduardo Augustine from Panama. I've been using an ATEM Mini Extreme ISO for my fly kit. HDMI cables are painful and started flickering or losing signal. Fiber cables and high-quality cables are not optimal. What are your takes on ATEM Mini Extreme SDI? I go ahead, David. Yeah. If you want to talk pain, uh, fat fingers and BNC connectors on the back of the SDI ATEM is painful. You need a trumpet tool for that? Um but I've got one at work and building it out. It's pretty slick so far. Uh, more to come. Go ahead, Mitchell. I've never had an SDI cable just pull out and fall off uh, of its own accord. HDMI, different story. I am in the process. I'm very close. I have all the I have the tools sitting around. I have everything <laughs> there. Probably this weekend, you'll see me jump up on After Hours a couple times and be making SDI cables. So I'm switching over to SDI in my home office. Um, I just... It's just gotten to the point where I need more routing than I have. And a lot of it has to do with the fact that I'm going to have a computer dedicated to Zoom ISO. I've been running it. I'm not running it today, but I'm running it almost every day. And so I want to get a whole bunch of outputs from Zoom from our show and be able to put them on monitors and route them and everything else. And as I got to that, I was like, this isn't going to work in HDMI anymore. So I'm moving to SDI. Uh, what I will say is that uh, especially if you're using it in an, in, in an extreme environment, or the, what I mean by extreme environment, the, if you're using the ATEM Extreme SDI, and you're at that level, I would highly recommend using the Neutrik rear twist ends and, you know, making your cables and doing it. It's so much better for your fingers. Exactly what David was talking about. You don't need to, you know, I can, I can put, I can do a 40 by 40 router with my hands without any real pain with the rear, rear twists. Um, other than my, <laughs> my, 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 I get tired, but that's it. Um, you know, because the, the thing, the thing is, is that you can actually go in there and grab them and pull them out because of the way that they're structured. You can also color code them. You can also, and they are a dollar more per end, you know, to do that. But if you're building your own SDIs, um, if you're building your own SDI cables, you're saving so much money that I feel like eh, I, have, I, can have the, I can have the luxuries in life of, of having something that I can easily take on and take off. But especially on a small kit, I would highly recommend it. I mean, if I was going to build 200 or 300 of the, you know, we have done that with Rear Twist. I was going to say, if we do three, two, two or 300, we wouldn't do it, but we have. We, we, I just, I, oh, I got to tell you, just get a couple. Someone will send you some. Just get a couple of them with rear twists. And after you have, have them, you'll just eventually, you'll look at everything else. It's just like, oh, I don't know why, why, why. Go ahead, Courtney. Uh, I was going to ask Alex, I haven't uh, tried to find those rear twists for the miniature coax, you know, for the eighth inch coax, which is great yep. to use inside cases. Do they make a, a crimp on connectors for those rear twists sure, for that miniature? Gauge. That's what I'm doing. It's 24, 24 gauge. gauge. Yeah. So, or it's you could go with my my solution, which is to 3D print a uh, TPU yeah. little collar that you heat yeah, it up, you slide it over the BNC, and then you got a nice hexagonal twist on the back of every BNC. But you don't like, even have to unsolder anything. But I have I have I have ten color. You know, I can do ten color coat. You know, you can color coat those. These can be printed in color. I value. Too. I guess all I would say is, I value. This is a white one. But, you know. I value my time. <laughs> so, so anyway, go ahead, David. Put the call to action in for the after hours thing. I'm doing similar at the new location at work. Um, okay. It'd be cool to, to 
You'll see, brain, see David and I. We'll have dueling, dueling, uh, uh, dueling I've FBI. It down with a spinning thing. And so, you, so uh, yeah, you'll, you'll see two. You know, it'd be really useful because you'll see two different ways of doing it. Because I have a motorized one. You just kind of and you pull, you 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 um, push it in there. What's nice also about the coastal tools is you just tell them what cable and what connector you're using, and they just send it to you calibrated. So you don't have to think about. You don't have to figure out where all those things go. Um, and uh, anyway, so yeah, we'll. David, we'll we'll talk. We'll make sure that we show up at the same time so people can see. Maybe what we really need is kind of like a knitting party. We'll just have like a big SDI making. Anybody who has SDI cables, we'll see if Mark and Courtney and David and I will all just be making SDI cables in different ways with different connectors and different, you know, and, and printing. We'll have a, a camera on the TPU that, that Courtney's printing to put on his his things. We'll have the <laughs> SDI relay race, right? I don't know if it's, it's the most geeky thing ever, but it's it, it's it's in the top 10. All right. I so. find SDI it battle of the betters. Yeah. I, I got to tell you, I love listening to audiobooks making cables. You know, like it's, it is the best. You know, um, I, I listen to, um, there's this book I've been listening to when I make cables called uh, uh, Shop Craft, uh, Shop Craft for, so, as a soul food, shop craft for soul food or something like that. It's all about making things and the importance of making things while I'm making something. It's just, it's a, you know, it's a perfect setup. So anyway, yeah, so we'll, we'll, we'll do some more of that soon. Next question. Stefan Fischer from Würzburg, Germany asking, can someone explain how oversampling actually works and when softer hardware uses the technology? Go ahead, Jason. Sure. I'll give it a, a, a shot with respect to audio. Um, I'll add to the last part first. So software or hardware uses it when it's necessary um, or when you tell it to. So if it's necessary for the workflow and it's smart enough, um, then then it should be doing it. And it is the process by which you um, record at X faster or um, X higher fidelity than, um, than your output in order to uh, maintain fidelity while stretching or, or messing around with, um, with audio. Yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, it's just a matter of voltage averaging over time. So if you're sampling at a higher frequency than you're going to be outputting, you collect a number of samples over a longer period of time, and you average those samples together to get a common sample that you output uh, at the uh, lower frequency output. So uh, it gives you uh, a truer you know, or at least a, an average of those of those uh, higher frequency samples, so you can get a little more detail uh, that that in uh, that it averages out. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. What, what what what's been discussed here is that the main thing is is you're you have way more samples than what you actually are are looking at, and and that's going to help smooth that out, especially if you do any kind of filtering or anything else. So, for instance. With motion capture, we may have a 30 frame per second motion capture, but we're going to capture at 480 frames or 240 frames. We're going to oversample that capture. And the reason for that is that if you think about, we have all these dots that are, that are the motion, and I only need this one, this one, this one, this one, you know, whatever that is, that, that's, that's what you're actually going to see. But any kind of errata that goes on here can be can be managed inside of that. And so, so by having way more samples, I can run a Butterworth filter on it. I can do all kinds of other things. And that's going to, but you're not going to, and all it's going to do is very subtly smooth out these pieces. In audio, it's kind of the same. You might capture 192 for a 48 out. You know? So, but the, what you're doing there is you're capturing way more data than you need so that, that you know, that's your production data. You're oversampling that. And then you're going to go down to a delivery uh, output, um, but you have lots of room to work. 
in imagery, when we talk about oversampling, what we're typically talking about is rendering way more than what you need. So you'll say, I want to render this at a, you know, a 2x, 4x, 8x oversample means I'm going to render the image way bigger than, you know, potentially 8x <laughs> over or 16x in some cases. And then what I'm going to do is I'm going to scale it down. And the reason that that's important is that when we scale down and we do something like a bicubic, um, you have the pixel and to figure out, okay, I've got way more pixels than I need here. We'll just say, and I'm going to, this is a 2x. I, I got twice as many pixels as I need or 3x. The, I got to go, I got to figure out what this pixel is. So I'm going to take all the pixels around it and I'm going to, and what, what Courtney was talking about, I'm going to average those pixels out to that one. I mean, it's, there's a lot of, I'm simplifying dramatically. So, but I'm saying that I'm going to look at all those pixels that are, are about to disappear because I'm scaling down and I'm going to, I'm going to average them out into this area and where that becomes really important is along hard edges. So when I do a 3d render across a curved edge like this, what happens is, is that a 3d, a 3d object is in one place and then it's not, and it's not <laughs> like there's no, there's no, like, it's not kind of somewhere. So there's no, there's basically this hard edge these the you know you'll see this aliasing and that's what you see right now in a lot of like real time 3D they're not doing any of that so you don't see any anti aliasing because that because there's the the object was here but it's not in the next pixel you know in in this pixel it's here in this pixel it's not that type of thing when i have that oversample and i scale down it now grabs all those images the ones that were there the ones that weren't and it gives me some kind of pixels that are in between you know they're not you know, when the when the 3D render was out came out, it was there or it wasn't in each in each pixel that it had at 8K, let's say. Now we're taking that down to 1080p. I'm now averaging all those pixels around it. So now there's a series. What I'm creating along that edge is a series of pixels that are all object and then no no object, but there's like three or four sets of pixels in between that are sub-object because I'm averaging the pixels that were there that where, where it was, you know, where it was a hard edge. I'm now averaging those groups and I end up with soft edges that are slowly transitioning like they would in the real world. And so that's what we, that, that, that removes that aliasing and makes it look much more natural. And so when we do really, really high-end renders, we have a tendency to really oversample that a lot, you know, and, and, and render it really large. The hard part is, is that you're rendering something really big and then you're doing a convo, what we call a convolution kernel, which means it's, it's very processor intensive to come back down into something that, that's there. So a lot of real-time renderers like Unreal and Unity and so on and so forth have a hard time doing that in real time. Um, and so that is going to be, you know, that's, you know, one of the things that, but you'll notice that I'm, this is kind of a red pill conversation. Now that I tell you that your edges are sizzling, <laughs> people's real-time edges are sizzling with little aliasing all along the curved edges and angled edges and so on and so forth. You'll see it all the time. You know, it's 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 a uh, it's it's really something that you know we're going to fix. I mean, technology will fix it, but it's it's going to it takes a lot of horsepower to get that right in real time. When we do three D rendering, we've been doing it for the last forty years. You know, to do you know to make that work. Um, next question. Next question in for Paul Terry Wallace in Austin, Texas. I was fooling around trying to get Video Pencil to work on an M1 Mac Mini with an iPad, and all of a sudden, a cursor appeared on my iPad that I could move around with my Logitech mouse. What just happened? Go, Jason. Uh, what happened was that uh, macOS handed off your mouse control to your iPad. If you go into displays and then um, advanced, the very top switch says um, allow your pointer and keyboard to move between any uh, Mac or iPad that is connected to the same iCloud account. That's what happened. Good, Bill. 
I think Jason's exactly right. I'm finding more and more instability if I don't shut down things. I have a a little boroscope that I was using for some examination, and it happened to be Wi-Fi connected rather than Bluetooth. And once I launch it, the next time I go back to Wi-Fi, I find I have to get rid of it because it's dominating that connection and won't release it to the next thing. So I'm just finding more and more instability with that kind of thing. Next question. Liberty White in Toronto, Ontario, asking, besides pointing your mobile device at a screen, how would you do an Instagram Live teaching the viewers material on your view desktop? Go ahead, Guy. Yeah, it's not a cheap solution, um, and it's not one that I really love to promote, but it's one that uh, is the actual only device on the market that does it. So there's a hardware from Yola Live called the InStream, and I tested it. It's an all right device. It looks like this. It's just basically a big Android tablet that has multiple uh, HDMI inputs. So you could send your um, your screen capture in just via HDMI, either the output of your ATEM. You just got to turn it sideways uh, so that you're looking at it that way. But this is what the device looks like with the two HDMI ins as well as a USB-A in. So you can use it with a, a, a link, which I, the Insta360 link, which I've done as well. So it's a cool device. It's just expensive for what it does. How much is it? 1200 bucks. You know, it's it's funny. A lot of us have talked about needing to turn an Android into into something like this for years. And we often said, you know, I'd pay $2,000 for that, you know, as an influencer if I was making money. So it's, I think it's, it's been one of those things that a lot of us have tried to figure out for a long time. And we ordered, I ordered all kinds of Android devices that would do similar things, um, you know, from Alibaba and all these, you know, that would do those, but they were all kind of funky. And so it looks like they've kind of finally made it something that you can just turn on and do. Um, 1200 bucks is a lot if you're a starting Instagram, you know, Instagram uh, influencer or TikTok influencer, but I think I think having the hardware actually work uh, is is useful for folks that are making a lot of money per post. Um, next question, Steve. You're off in Madison, Wisconsin. Has anyone ever succeeded in getting 1080p video out of Microsoft Teams? If yes, please share your magic. I've found multiple configurations to top out at 720p at best. I'm not a Teams expert, but my understanding is is that if you are one on one with somebody else and you have the right license, you can have 1080p. As soon as you add the third person past the two that you have there, you're at 720. So they say that the, it, it does, what confuses it is Microsoft says that it can do up to 1080p. Up to is a big word, which is basically almost never. <laughs> like so, so that's you know, so like it, it'll do. Uh, so it, it it's uh, we've uh, never had a even on one on ones we couldn't we we had a hard time getting to turn uh, uh, over to Tenity. If we do it on one on one and there's nobody else in it and there's no witness or anything else, there's uh, we've seen 1080p, but but it usually is 720. Go ahead, guy. It depends on whose meeting it is. You got to turn on some stuff in the back end. If it's your tenant, you can turn on NDI output and you can get 1080. Um, the other thing is, uh, if you want to know what another bit of magic, it's uh, use Epifan Connect, and you could send, you could kick SRT out, and that way, if you're using something like VMix, you can just push it right SRT right into your show. Uh, so my understanding is is that even if it punches out 1080p, it's 720 on the transport after the second person joins. So you're, it is a 1080p output from from Teams, but it's not a 1080, uh, it's not 1080 from the reflector. It's just being scaled up on the way out. Um, go ahead, Chris. Yeah, the most important word in marketing is new. And the most important word in tech support is up to. 
<laughs> it's like, yeah, we do it. We do it once, but I don't, I don't believe, and we can easily test that. If someone wants to test it at some point, we can put a resolution chart there. But I talked to someone who played with the resolution charts and they said that the 1080p, they were fairly certain that the 1080p was a 720p signal that was being scaled up to get out. Um, it, they're not transporting seven, uh, 1080 the way Zoom does. Um, next question. Shereg Cheetah from Dallas asking, looking for a way to remotely distributed team to quickly collaborate and share videos for post-production work for internal staff and external contractor access. We've got about 50 to 100 terabytes of data. Good, Bill. So originally, I've been using Frame.io for most of that kind of stuff for a long time. Recently, because Frame was acquired by Adobe and, and they may be going through some kinds of changes, I think it's still fine and a choice if you use that. Um, we've been looking into LucidLink. It doesn't have the same uh, markup collaborative, but one that's on my radar now is called Alteon, A-L-T-E-O-N.io. They seem to have a lot of uh, investment right now, and they are trying to be the Frame.io for the Mac side of things, but I think they also do uh, PC. I know they work with Premiere as well as working with Final Cut. So those might be a couple of things to look into. Good, Chris. Uh, Cherig, I definitely plus one on LucidLink. We've used it here in Office Hours. We've used it on Office Hours Productions. It's super cool. Uh, it works quite well. Yeah, we've been using it in the coverage that we've done. So all these events we started, you know, LucidLink has been kind enough to let us play with it, and it is stunning. It's just it's it's just worked really really well. The teams have been really happy with it. So I would definitely take a look at it. It's something that large. I think a cloud based one might, might be a little bit difficult. Um, so no, no, not, not with LucidLink, but with something like Frame, it gets pretty expensive or, or other things like that. Uh, the other one we want to test is the Blackmagic Cloud. You know, we just haven't had the, you know, all the pieces in one place to make that happen. But I think those are the two. And I think if you, unless, only if you're using Resolve, um, that, that it might work. There's a lot of collaboration that's, that's available within the application, um, of Resolve that, you know, each person can have their own page that they're working on all at the same time, which I, I find interesting. Um, but if you're in a, looking for a general purpose uh, solution that's going to share all those files, I, I have we haven't seen anything better than LucidLink. Next question. John Filer from Greenfield, Massachusetts, built some 20 by 20 office partition rooms in an open floor co-working space as Zoom rooms using metal studs and rock wool walls with corrugated clear plastic ceilings. It is not held in the sound I hope for. Any thoughts? Go ahead, Mitchell. If you're doing any kind of soundproofing, not treatment, but proofing, you need mass. Anything that has mass that has thick, like uh, drywall, um, you need something like that to block the sound. Sometimes it'll block the higher frequencies, but the low frequencies just go sailing right through. So the best way to do that would be to build rooms inside of rooms with no mechanical connection between the two walls. If you put like a stud or a electrical outlet with a conduit connecting, it completely defeats the purpose. Because again, remember, you're fighting uh, sound trying to go through and mechanical um, uh, vibrations from turning into sound on the opposite wall. So thickness really works well. And they do make special uh, drywall material that can uh, that accomplish that for you. And a plastic roof isn't going to help you because even a uh, three or four inch hole anywhere in that room is going to pass a lot of sound either way. Yeah, I I, I would say I, I, I would I, I, I think that uh, I, I, we have a, we work out of a, I'm going to be in a floated room later today. The floated room is what you're looking for is, is a floated room. And it's got a couple outputs that aren't quite, you know, connected and it's still really quiet. <laughs> you really have to, I mean, so, you know, getting a lot of air around it and then getting, as, as Mitch said, mass is important. Go ahead, Bill. 
Most of the time in regular commercial offices, you ask somebody to build it out because you're going in and signing a lease and they're going to do a build out. They have no idea how to do this kind of stuff. And I've run into this over and over again. The room looks great. It sounds terrible. Uh, the only way I know to completely solve it is to buy a commercial voice book and put it inside the room, which is what I have done here in my home. Uh, it solves the problem that Mitch is talking about. And I agree with him. It, 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 doing audio soundproofing is a complicated endeavor. Uh, go ahead, Courtney. And I'd be suspicious of that corrugated plastic ceiling because corrugation carries as long channels that are open with air running through them. Yeah. And uh, it's going to carry sound from one room into the next room, into the next room, into the next room. So anything you have that's linking the airflow between those two those cubicles is going to carry the sound along with it because the sound travels on air pressure. So uh, and if you do float a room and have it ice completely isolated, then you're going to have to figure out how to get air conditioning in there because those people will suffocate after you close the door for too long. Good, good, David. Yep, uh, this sounds to me like a job for control and the cone of silence. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. Uh, go ahead, Mitchell. Would you believe a, no, if you have a wall and let's say you're not able to float the room, but you just want to reduce the amount of sound, make sure that if you have a wall going up, that it goes all the way up to the slab above. You can put a ceiling below that. It could be a drop ceiling. It could be a plastic ceiling. But the important thing is that those walls go all the way up and provide isolation between the floor and the wall. Or close it. You know, you can. You don't have to go all the way up if you're going to close it. But closing it, closing everything off, and building something around it. And we've definitely done some of this. And what we do is we create space. You know, between. Uh, you know, again, it's just starting to create pockets of of air that aren't moving are really the thing that you know that that will take most of that out. Uh, Chris, real quick. Uh, John, first of all, I uh, compliment you on working so hard to do it. I think it's these are the type of things where the the homework ahead of time makes the execution much better. If you already have these rooms, they're already 20 by 20, you're, al you're already using them and having, uh, experiencing some problems, a lot of these suggestions you can't, you can't uh, use. I would possibly recommend for the walls that are outside of the camera view, um, more uh, cloth, you know, hanging curtains, uh, possibly some baffled, you know, cloth above the, you know, between the corrugated uh, thing. But it's a good, it's a good lesson to if you're going to build something purpose built, do tons of research ahead of time so you're not, you know, disappointed at the end result. Bill, real, real quick. Yeah. Air handling, uh, duct work for voice booths and things like that have baffles in them to stop even the direct passage of air so it doesn't carry sound in. So it's a spe specified thing. Next question. Douglas Carmichael, Apple charges U.S. $1,200 to upgrade to an 8-terabyte internal SSD from a 4-terabyte SSD on the M2 Pro Mac Mini. Does the panel have any recommendations for Thunderbolt external 8-terabyte SSDs that would cost less? Go ahead, Courtney. The problem is the 8-terabyte SSDs are quite expensive, even if you put them in an external enclosure. Uh, when you jump from four to eight to fit them into the same size of uh, a PC board that'll fit into a uh, NVMe drive uh, is the problem. And I'm not sure, but uh, I haven't done a teardown, and I don't think anyone has on yet on the new uh, M2s. 
uh, whether they have an internal S- M2 SSD slot that they're sticking just a regular uh, NVMe board into, so you could probably upgrade it yourself if you could find a cheaper 8-terabyte uh, NVMe board and not use an external Thunderbolt uh, connection to it. Uh, you might be able to open it up. Look for a teardown on uh, iFixit or something when those... Uh, s- they're coming out, what is it, today? Uh or next week, uh, and see if it's just an internal uh, NVMe board for the storage. I know the memory is on the mother is on the chip, but uh, the storage is external. Go ahead, Jason. I'm sorry, Bill. Uh, Bill, um, those SSDs inside the Macs are incredibly fast, and so I'm wondering if you really need eight terabytes. Think about that. I know I started with one terabyte; it was good for a couple of years. Moved to two. I will probably move to four, which is where you are right now. I don't expect any issues with what I'm doing now in my current uh, production with four terabytes. Eight would be a great luxury, and it is super fast with that built in. But just know that you're really going to need it. See what your patterns of usage are now, and how much of it you use up. Go, Jason. Nothing's going to beat the internal speed, but your solution straight away is um, OWC's redesigned MiniStacks STX. Um, this is exactly the size of a Mac Mini, and it will um, it will allow you to have three other Thunderbolt um, ports coming out of it. When you look inside of it, what you get is an M.2 slot and a SATA slot. Real-time throughput is 770 megabits per second, so that's five gigabytes of video um, in about six seconds, which, you know, not quite as fast as internal, but pretty stinking fast. You can get an extra four terabytes for 800 bucks. And I copied uh, Chris Fenwick. I learned from Chris Fenwick, and I've got, we've got a couple of these. These are the OWC Express M4 or is it four M2s? Um, so these are you basically put four MVMEs into the into the into a little box, and then you plug it into the outside, and it gets like two thousand or two gigs a, a second. Wicked it's uh, fast. It's wicked fast, and it's relatively quiet. There's a little bit of a fan noise there, but it's relatively quiet. Um, it's half the speed of the internal drive um, of my studio, but. You know, if you're doing anything other than what I'm doing, I, I would prefer to have eight gigs inside of mine because I'm 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 cutting six K, like multiple six K um, raw black magic raws, and that has been problematic. <laughs> you know, on on the external drives. If I was doing anything else, I would just use external drives, and and I use this. This is plugged in. When I say I recommend it, it's plugged into my computer at the moment. <laughs> That's what I'm working off of. Uh, next question. Paul Terry Wallace, Austin, Texas, asking, I live in a large house with many rooms. I have portals of all kinds, Echo Dots, Elixirs, etc. Is there a way to set these up as intercoms to talk from room to room internally? Go ahead, Courtney. I don't know about intercom, but it does have a command called a person announce. If you're talking about the Alexas, uh, you just say the term a lady announce followed by whatever you want to speak, and it'll broadcast out to all the other Alexas in your neighborhood, in your, on your, your, in your house on the same network. Good guy. Yeah, with the Amazon Alexas, if you do want to uh, talk to just a certain one, you you got to enable that feature. It's called drop-in, and once you enable drop-in, then you can say the name, you say Alexa drop-in on, like I have one at the office, and uh, it's the one with the camera, and it'll take a couple seconds for it to actually... So it'll make the phone ringing sound, and then it'll blur the camera image for about 10 seconds in case you are dropping in on somebody who's unaware or you've just made them aware with the sound. Um, so that, that's how you do it, is enable drop-in, and then you got to say the name of the device. So if you named it Bedroom, uh, Alexa drop-in on Bedroom, and it'll drop-in. 
Go ahead, Chris. Yeah, this whole space is super interesting. I know that with the Apple Home stuff, you can do intercoms between uh, the HomePods and the little mini HomePods. I I really think you could do, I've been getting very fascinated by it. We could easily do a whole clone of office hours on just home automation. And I think that the whole, I think it could be a, a huge show, like really big. Hold that thought. Next question. Douglas Carmichael asking, when comedian Dave Chappelle introduced phone locking pouches at his shows, he said that going phone free, quote, empowered him to be more honest and open with his audience, unquote. Can you create the same honesty and openness in a digital first environment? I go ahead, David. Yeah, I think Zoom has features to do watermarking and some sort of digital thumbprint, but it you'd have to keep the digital first event in that closed environment. Once it hits a public CDN or distribution outside of the the event, the ticketed event kind of thing, it's kind of open for scraping and all sorts of reproduction. Hey, go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, basically what they're doing at these shows is they're placing phones inside a Faraday pouch and locking it and handing it back to the uh, the customer. So the question is, how do you apply that to a digital-first ev- environment? Um, I know that if I'm in, a, in an audience and there's a comedian on stage with a microphone and my phone rings, and I'm going to get some grief about it, and uh, Dave Chappelle's one of the best. So I'm not sure if you have a similar threat, so to speak, uh, in a digital-first environment where where somebody forgets and doesn't have their phone on. They need I don't to think be, he's worried about people ringing, the phone ringing. I think that he doesn't want people to record what he's saying. <laughs> well, that's, <laughs> that's ultimately what's going on there. Yeah. And in a, in a digital-first event environment, they just don't want the distraction. They want to be fully attentive. Go ahead, Courtney. Well, if you're in a digital-first environment where you're broadcasting to people who are receiving that event on a device at home, you really don't have any control over it. Uh, they can always scrape it by pointing a camera at the screen. If it can be seen and heard at a, at a distant location, it can be captured and then rebroadcast um, you know, to the peril of the copyright uh, lawyers. But, uh, yeah, I mean, there's no way to prevent that from happening if you're going with a digital-first uh, event where you're broadcasting out, out to all people. It's, you know, there's no way of preventing you know, other people from distributing that software, if you, uh, that uh, image and sound, if you don't want them to. Go ahead, Chris. This is a much bigger question than just technology. This has to do with, you know, how we interact with people, um, uh, <laughs> the decorum that we choose to exhibit. And uh, it's not a technical question, but. Yeah. Chappelle, I, I get where Chappelle's coming from. My my sister in law, she she's a master of um, cute little sayings, and she always says, uh, "Say what you mean, mean what you say, but don't say it mean." <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think that the. Uh, uh, <laughs> There's a lot of companies that that have had this for years, watermarking, um, and then also what they call uh, digital fingerprinting. So they'll put things in that you can't see, but they can they can figure out who you were, and that's being added at the client level. So at the client level, it's inserting things into that video, even if you capture it. It's inserting things into the audio, even if you capture it. It may sound like little bits and bops and things like that, but it's really... And so if you don't know it's happening, um, they can very quickly, if it goes up on the internet, they can oftentimes still still find it. The technology has gotten better over the last 20 years. It started about 20 years ago, and it is 
for the pe- people who pay for it, it's it's pretty it's pretty advanced um, that it can you know they can figure those things out. Some of them are obvious; they have your name like rotating around across the front um, to make that work. But some of them are less obvious, and then you can't figure out why you got fired. <laughs> so because a lot of times they don't even tell you that they did it. So anyway, so the um, uh, so so I think that uh, so internal communications have used all kinds of watermarking for many years, at least a decade. Um, they've been pretty popular, um, and so. It's not the same as being in the same room, but in the same room, other than putting phones inside of, I mean, most of our real-time events were in a room with cell phones and everything else. That's that's how you hear all these other leaks. So I I think that it's very rare to have a secure conversation. I've been in the rooms where we have to give, we have to hand, before you get to the room, you have to put your phone and your watch and anything else electronic into a little box and <laughs> you get to go in and have a conversation. Uh, and, and even, uh, even there, you know, there's always a risk, you know, to make that happen. Uh, go ahead, David. Yeah, and I've seen those offices that have the, uh, it's ultrasonics or some sort of masking thing. So even from across the street, you can't point a para- parabolic mic at it and tap yeah. in. So, yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. Go ahead, Mitchell. Yeah, you might think that jamming uh, a cell signal would work, but uh, that is illegal. You're not allowed to mess with uh, public uh, frequencies by the FCC. You're not allowed to jam them, but you are allowed to build things into the into the building that would make them less uh, pr- propagate. You know, there's actually a bar in the UK, I believe, that they actually um, he actually built the whole bar inside of a Faraday cage, so that when you walk into the bar none of the cell signals work. <laughs> you know, like it just, it, he didn't, he didn't block it. He just, he just built cages all the way around it. As they built up the bar, they just built it into the walls. Um, yeah, go ahead, Courtney. Yeah, we, I see a market now for the Dave Chappelle comedy skiff, which is uh, little rooms they have all across America. <laughs> you get to see a comedy skiff. The comedy yeah, skiff. How skit in we, the skiff. All I can say is you've got like seconds to, to copyright that, uh, Courtney, because <laughs> comedy skiff is, that is the next, Oh, oh my god! So comedians can go in there without the fear of ruining their career and saying something. I know. just, but I think that the 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 entire idea of a comedy skiff of people who look like they're in the intelligence agency with the little things up there, you know, little things in their ear, and and they're talking into the thing. Yeah, we've got a guest, so we're going to bring him. In. You know, like I can I can see that as a as an entire business. <laughs> anyway, go ahead, Jason. Not one I'm There's, not going to do, but I think would be really cool. Go ahead, Jason. There are several clubs in Miami Beach that are straight up like Faraday cages. And I've got to say, those are the most fun because you don't have all these people just sitting there looking at their phones. Comedy skiff. All right. Last question for the first hour. And Douglas Carmichael asking the last one. In a mix op-ed, one reason they mention artists using recorded tracks live is when the record was epic, but the band is not. What's the secret to building multi-layered arrangements that don't sound cluttered? Go ahead, Bill. There has to be a really good arranger uh, that that's required. But this is typical of live performance. Sometimes you get into a place and you just can't, the band can't hear themselves. I did uh, stadium announcing and I came back to myself with about a, a three second delay, impossible to work in those kind of circumstances. So there's lots of reasons that they're using tracks that are pre-built. All right. We are now going to change subjects. We've got the Zoom team here. Andy Carluccio, Jonathan Cocatello, and Sam Kakaiko uh, are here from Zoom Events, uh, Zoom Events Engineering, Zoom Events itself, uh, all kinds of, uh, you know, expertise here to, uh, to answer your questions. Um, and I'm going to throw it to Andy uh, to kind of kick us off. 
Good morning, everybody, and thanks again for having us. Uh, it's always a, a pleasure to hang out with you guys and answer your questions. Um, a couple of new things that have been released in Zoom since the last time that we got together, I thought I'd go over just really quickly, and then I look forward to answering your questions with Jonathan and Sam. Um, so first, uh, we now have the ability to create breakout rooms based on the results of polls. So you can go into the poll interface, which is now part of the client, uh, versus something that you have to only do in the web. So you can now go to a button inside of the client, create your questions inside of your session. And then you can say, based on the results of these polls, I want to put people into breakout rooms named after the different answers. And you can actually, uh, this is a way to batch multiple different presets of breakout rooms. So if I have question one, I can create all my breakout rooms for question one's respondees, open the breakout rooms, everybody goes into them. Then I can go in and hit question two's responses. It'll recreate the breakout rooms for me and the assignments. Then I can open that room. So it's a great way of uh, having conversations about content and uh, classifying everybody by their responses to a type of question. And again, it can be, well, it's targeted, I think, at an education-focused use case. You could use it for certain type of demographic conversations or affinity groups, uh, things that could be helpful for an event production. So that that just shipped in 5.13.5 this past weekend. So update your Zoom client and check it out. I think it'll be a really helpful way of crafting some interesting conversations. Um, number two, we now have the ability to select channels from a multi-channel audio device to be used as your mic. So when you go into the Zoom settings, you can pick a microphone that has maybe six channels. You can say, hey, it has six channels, but I only want to use three and four for my microphone. And you can go in and you can click that and Zoom will then take those two. You can have all six, you can have them mixed together by Zoom, or you can separate them out. You can define how many channels are available. Um, but, and this is in the vanilla Zoom client. So if you have more of a professional audio workflow, now there is a feature in there that's brand new that'll help you manage the selection of channels. Um, this should bring some relief to those of you who are using one audio device for multiple different routes and had traditionally been seeing Zoom kind of compress all that together. It's now a way to get it a little more granular without having to go out to something like Loopback uh, in the middle of the chain. Loopback is still great. There's still plenty of uses for it, but now you don't have to use it if this is uh, your intended use case with a normal Zoom client. Um, for uh, enterprise use case in our event space, uh, we've released Mesh, Zoom Mesh, which is our enterprise CDN, which means that you only have to bring in one, uh, well, a reduced number of copies of your content come into the building, and then the clients sub-distribute that out to each other, um, which if you're doing like an all hands or an event that has, um, uh, maybe it's, uh, you know, some sort of, it's it could be like a, a digital event that has multiple hubs, and you don't need every downstream device to be pulling from the Zoom cloud. This is a great way to help it be sub-distributed. Again, enterprise CDN uh, style use case. Um, speaker attributions and captions. So our captioning system looks really different than it did before. And you can actually see now the profile picture and the name of the person who is uh, creating the who is responsible for the content that's being captioned. It looks really nice. Uh, and it's a lot clearer now how to follow the conversation along. It's just more pleasing to the eye as well. Even if you're not relying on it to, uh, to interpret the content, it's still just a lot more visually pleasing, I think. Um, webinar resources. This feature allows you to uh, say to basically link out to external material that you want your attendees to have with them during a webinar. So maybe, maybe it is like a call to action style use case. Maybe it's just additional documentation or information. And you can provide those things over time as the webinar is progressing. And you can then get analytics about how many people actually went and looked at that stuff. 
uh, in a CSV file that you can get through your uh, webinar report after the webinar is over. Um, Q&A, uh, this, the, which traditionally was a webinar feature, is now available in meetings. Um, so you can go in and, and you can do that whole Q&A system that we have inside of the meeting context, which is really exciting. Um, and then a big one that we just released is what we're calling uh, Simulive or Simulive, which is very similar to like a premiere um, uh, of a piece of content. Now, this is something to be careful with um, in terms of how you think about where it fits inside of your space. I think that, um, like, for example, with YouTube premieres, there was a lot of conversation about how it was freeing up the individual creator to be able to focus on engagement in the chat and Q&A without also having to be live and managing their live stream. So it gave them the concurrency benefit of having something that's playing out that draws everybody together, but it left them with the freedom to be able to focus on engagement through their other tools. And I think that second part is really, really important with this. It's, you know, while it is possible to just, you know, cloud record your webinar and then play it back and not have to think about it, it's really an opportunity for those smaller events to be able to have the concurrency of bringing everybody together, but really to be able to focus yourself on those engagement tools. I think that's how you're going to have a successful Simulive. It's, it's, you can continue to engage the audience and it allows you to focus on engaging them rather than just having to split your attention between presenting the content and engaging the audience. Um, so that's a focus point for Simulive. And then the last thing I was going to mention is that the Zoom team is going to be live uh, at ISE next week in Barcelona. Um, so we'll be talking not only about you know our large product wheel of different things that we do. We will have a Zoom ISO set up. We'll have a uh, you know a Zoom room with some interesting things going on. Uh, there'll be some interesting things about Production Studio to come check out. So if anybody is going, uh, I'd love to see you there. I'll be there myself and happy to give anybody some behind the scenes or a tour of the space uh, and would love to uh, see anybody who's out there uh, come and say hello. So we look forward to seeing you there if you're going to uh, stop by. So with all of that, uh, I know I told Alex I wasn't going to have any news. This yeah, time. I, and I said, I don't care. Just just bring the team on. We just, we just want the team to answer questions. You know, so so it was, uh, but that's that's great news. Uh, is the is the Simulive part of webinar meetings? Is it something that you would, um, you could use to insert a playback like during the show? So it doesn't bring you into the, uh, the core like client experience. It is all based through the web. Okay. Um, so it's more like our web and lobby experience out there. Um, uh, but there are, um, you know, I think there's, and I think that that's intentional. I think that the play, the, where this, where this is being focused right now is, uh, for example, I could see this being really successful for content that you want to release before all of your interactive sessions that can still have the excitement of getting everybody together to go view some piece of content and can still be engaging because the hosts are now available to provide information about the things that they're presenting through the text. And then to have live Q&A sessions or interactive sessions that immediately follow, I see it more as being as part of that structure um, where the focus right now isn't on like taking one session and trying to segment it into different parts of like play out versus, uh, live content. That makes sense. Uh, David? A question on the mesh and, and howdy to the crew there. Um, is it required 513 for across the board? to benefit from it? And is there any setup needed? And also, um, do Zoom rooms participate in that mesh experience? Yeah, for mesh, it is more of an enterprise focused feature. So I would definitely work with your, uh, your enterprise contacts at Zoom to help you with the configuration side of it and what the minimum versions to support it are. Sometimes with Zoom, this is more of a general answer versus just that's 
feature specifically. Sometimes we pre-release the dependencies for a feature in client versions that precede the dropping of the feature. So um, every now and then the dependencies for something are going to come out before that feature. Other times it is concurrent with the release of the feature. I'm not sure which category this falls into, um, uh, but definitely the intention of it is that the um, there definitely is a large client component to this. It's the clients are redistributing the content to each other, hence the mesh kind of idea. But for specific details on how to configure it, it is a little bit above me. But um, I would I would reach out to your uh, your enterprise contacts and they can help you get it all set up. But it is it is available now. It was something we announced with Symtopia, but now it is available, so they can get you all the information about that. It's great. And how many? And I have a question about the breakout rooms. Um, so the breakout rooms from the poll. It's up to four. Is that right? Is that a four option? How many? How many uh, answers can you provide for the in the in the uh, in the poll? It's as many as it's as many as can be put into the poll. Um, so I don't know how many that is now. Um, and I know that you can also, you can, um, you can release the, so polls got completely overhauled. Um, so it right, used right. to be, so the polls you thought you knew are no longer the polls that you were dealing with. Right, now. <laughs> right. Um, and it's now built into the client specifically. So you can, you can used to be that you cared about how many you could do because you would have to predetermine what your polling questions were going to be and do them in the back end. Now that it's part of the client, you can just be, I mean, I don't want to say you can do them infinitely, but you should be able to manage that, release a question, delete a question, open the poll. You can manage that all inside of the polling interface in the client now. So I don't know if it's, maybe it's still four in flight at a time, but right. Right. And go in and just create your next batch and then put them through. It's now, all and, 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 that, and, and the question about that batch. So if I asked a question and there's four answers and then it builds four rooms and I ask another question, it'll build another four rooms or will it? It'll replace the four rooms you had and create. But if you replace them with three rooms, it'll replace them with three rooms or two rooms with two. And, and, then when I, and, it, and I can just close it, bring everybody back in, ask another question and then reorg and re. That's right. Them. And you can, or you could do the reverse. You could, you could have them respond to all their questions first. That way you have it all set up and then you can just go create these breakouts. Okay. Now we're going to talk about this, create these breakouts. You can go through it that way as well. That's great. That's great. We have so many questions. <laughs> so, so we'll go ahead and, uh, and jump into the questions. Here's the top voted question. Uh, TJ Asher in Minneapolis, Minnesota asking, can we get the setting to keep original sound on when a specific microphone is selected back? Please? Pretty please. And, and by the way, I just want to point out, this is the most popular question we've ever had in McConaughey. <laughs> <laughs> like it, it's, it's a it's a it's a unique thing we, we've never had 24 votes on on anything in in office hours i mean we had in other things but anyway go ahead andy yeah so i'm i'm going to take a minute with this one if it's all right because of how popular it is yeah, and really try to walk through where we are with this and and explain what our guidance is on the use of original sound so when i first saw this change i kind of you know kicked in the front door guns ablaze and like who changed this why did you do it what's going on here that's unacceptable and you know kind of just going off about like hey this you really affected a use case here and you know the the engineers and the pms were very patient with me and said well let's let's show you why um and the information that i've i've come across and kind of uncovered here and looking through this question is actually really astounding to me um so i'm going to share some of that with you so uh if i were to ask you um uh, who do you think uses original sound more often? People with pro setups or people with laptop mics? Which would you guess? Probably the pro setup, right? Because original sound is intended for that. But if you said that, not only would you be wrong, you'd be orders of magnitude wrong for how often people are using just 
basic laptop mic setups with original sound because they think it makes it better. Um, so it's, it's a huge disparity. It's actually such a small percentage of, of participants who have pro setups that should be using original sound were the ones using it. So, um, and again, the vast majority of them had no business to use it, to be frank. And in fact, it's the number one cause of bad meeting audio. It brings in echo, looping, excessive noise. Um, it completely derails the conversation, right? If you're pumping back in space from the room and it's bouncing off and coming back into the microphone, uh, it's a lot worse than somebody just being off in the corner and rudely, you know, talking on their phone while you're in a physical space meeting, right? It totally derails the conversation. So it's really, really high stakes that we have good audio. So even in office hours, right, where we have pro setups, we have people who spend thousands of dollars on their home setup. They have dedicated teams checking the audio, high knowledge of Zoom. We can barely go one week without somebody sending in breathing or background noise or other stuff into the show that is fundamentally traceable back to having original sound set for everybody, right? So, so what do we do from here, right? Our algorithms have changed a lot since 2020, and I think it's important to note that. So, but what, what is our guidance from here? So first of all, if you're sending music, you should absolutely have original sound on. Absolutely. We, none of Zoom's algorithms are really designed for dealing with music. They're more for the spoken voice. So if you are sending music through your microphone, please make sure you set that and go, go into the original sound settings, turn on the in-meeting setting and make sure it's on before you play out music content. If you're just using it for your voice, I think you should take another look at the difference between Zoom's audio processing and tuning for that versus... Uh, using original sound in your setup as it is today. Just do a head-to-head, -head, even if you don't end up going this route, just see where we've gotten. A lot of the trouble that people run into is when they have a bunch of processing on their side and then they give it to Zoom and Zoom does a bunch of processing. That exaggerates the problem. Figure out how to tune your audio chain with Zoom audio set. It is fairly high quality. So you might find that the, the Delta isn't, um, isn't as big as you think or as big as it was in 2020. And that the benefits that you get um, are, you know, outweigh some of the additional, you know, final mile features uh, that you might get by completely controlling it in dedicated hardware, right? So take a look at that. And if you decide that after doing that test, you really do need original sound, um, for now, the best thing for you to do is to go grab the MSI installer, which allows you to have uh, pre-configured settings. There's, um, this is basically an enterprise feature where you can go in and say, my Zoom client always has original sound on. You can go in and you can pre-configure that setting and you can possibly install that as a secondary Zoom client as well. So you want to go find the enterprise installer, which for Windows at least is an MSI file. And it has the ability for you to go in and set properties. And then there's a bunch of these properties. You might find them interesting to look at just in general. And you can always set on the original sound. Um, and that way, if you know your setup it works best with original sound and you're going to be diligent and you're going to be very careful about making sure that you're using it properly. You can go ahead and set that up. Now that means it's not the end of the story. We are still looking at, um, you know, what can we do to improve this? I think one area of uh, improvement that we're having conversations about is something that was mentioned from office hours, the persistence of the setting. Once you set it, when you're moving between breakout rooms and things like that, I see those as being areas of compromise. I don't think we're going to roll all the way back to where we were before because of how drastic the issue was and, and how significant it is both from, again, the average Zoom user all the way up to even the pros having some, some trouble where original sound really is causing some disruption. So I don't think we're going to roll all the way back, but I do think we're going to work to find creative solutions to figure out how to make sure that music content gets delivered at really high quality uh, without our algorithms getting in the way 
and how to make sure that the choices that we make consciously are persistent, at least for the length of the meeting. So those are things that we're talking about. I don't have any specific timelines or goals, but uh, I look forward to continuing the conversation as well and hearing more thoughts from the rest of the team. I wanted to come and be very transparent about where we are with it and what we're seeing and why it's the way it is. And I hope that context gives you a little bit of a sense of what Zoom is dealing with at a larger scale and how this wasn't ignoring you guys. It was more so that we had to weigh the good and the bad. And frankly, the team did have the pros in mind when they made this feature, but the, the, the data was just so clear about what direction we had to go in that this was the choice that we had to make. Go ahead, Sam. Um, so I just want to add a couple clarifications on the MSI. One is that the MSI installer is a version that is launched with every release. So it's not something that you're going to be behind on features or anything. Every time there is a release, there is an MSI package of that release available on the website, easy to grab. Uh, the other thing about the MSI method is it is not quite the same as it was. Where it was, was I select one device and that device always has original sound. But if I switch to my other mic, so I could say my capture card, use original sound, my mic, don't. Uh, the MSI handles differently in that it says always original sound, no matter what device. So do be aware of that difference uh, and where it could potentially bite you and make you the problem that we're trying to avoid here. Uh, and then just echoing what Andy said about, um, I originally came to Zoom almost six years ago now as an audio engineer to program DSPs for their conference rooms. Um, audio is very near and dear to me, and I've never been anything but amazed at the improvements happening in the algorithms and kind of what it does. It, you know, a dual AEC and NLP used to be a huge issue for us. It's really not anymore. And uh, I think really... What it's going to be about is if your noise reduction settings are too steep and are starting to decrease some of that fidelity, which if you're in a noisy environment is the lesser of two evils. If you have a nice, quiet mic, good setup, frankly, if you set your noise reduction on low, in my experience, in Andy's experience, what we've seen, it's not going to mess with you. It's going to say, I don't need to do much here. My work is done. Good, Bill. Some of us use hardware mutes because we've uh, just in circumstances where it's necessary. And there's been some talk on the web about whether or not that affects Zoom's ability to do a, a noise print in the background of us and be effective. Do you have any guidance on whether or not we're defeating the system? I don't have any specific information about whether we use the whether we're using those samples to create our generation. Um I'll have to get back to you on that one, Bill. I think that um, I don't know for sure, but maybe Sam, do you have any experience on that? Yeah, I mean, so our our echo uh, our echo cancellation and our noise reduction are both adaptive. All of our processing is very adaptive. So if your environment is one way and then you mute your mic and it changes and it's another way, that will absolutely potentially mess with things. It may take a second for our mic to hear, pick up the new noise print and then reduce it. Uh, if your environment's not changing, we're just gonna keep holding on to the last thing and, and it should work pretty well. Um, but that's definitely like, it's why per channel AEC is always important and, and why uh, these algorithms have been important is because if you change the environment, all bets are off. So if we select low as the adaptive noise reduction setting, is that probably a better solution? That's how I would end up setting it myself. Thanks. And every setup is going to differ, I think, a little bit. And again, the use case is also really important. Um, if you're just having meetings and, and conversations and the goal is, you know, to get most of the way there with that kind of use case, then I think, yeah, low is fine. If the purpose is to try to get some sort of final deliverable out of Zoom and you need every little bit you can get, that's when I think you should go and, and chase down that that original sound option. Again, you can turn on original sound in Zoom. I'm not saying you, you, you can't do that or there's a huge issue with that. 
but I think that it's overused in places where it doesn't need to be, I guess is my overall point. And I think that there are plenty of valid use cases to do it. But I think that when you need to do it, the extra mental diligence required is not um, so crazy as to think that you would have to go make sure you had the setting turned on, right? Like taking that extra mental leap to go enable original sound should be the same category of thinking about this that you do when you're using original sound in general, right? And that's why it's not bound to the device anymore because people were going through you know weeks and weeks and weeks on mics they shouldn't be using original sound with or they turned it on because they were going to hold their phone up to their microphone on their laptop for a second and play out some music into a meeting and then forgot and now in perpetuity they are trashing every single zoom meeting they go to and that's why it's different that's great next question Next one in from Mickey Makachur from the Philippines. How does one pull a stereo isolated audio feed from Zoom ISO? Go ahead, Andy. So as Mickey knows, we, when we discussed this during our workshop series in December, uh, we don't have the ability to do that yet. However, within three weeks of Mickey making the request, it was added to the meeting SDK, which is the precursor to something showing up in ISO. So uh, it is now in meeting SDK. I can't say exactly when the next ISO release is going to be, but now that's something there that any developer on our platform can leverage the ability to pull out uh, stereo audio channels there. So stay tuned on it. It is something we're working on. There's a, there's steps to doing it. And again, I'll just take the opportunity to remind everybody that one of the things that I try to do with the ISO project is not just to make a good product, but really to up-level the developer platform. And this is the untold story of where I think we had a real success last year in the things that we did, um, you know, the product certainly came a long way. But the thing that's most important to me is actually what we did to the developer platform so that anybody building tools in the platform can do the kind of things that we do in Zoom ISO. Um, that's really important to me that, you know, we start by putting things in that anybody can use and then we use our own SDKs to build a product in this vertical. That way, when I go to partners and I say, look at what Zoom's capable of, I don't have to then say, well, but we have to come up with ways that we can get these features available to third parties and all that stuff. Zoom ISO is completely built on the third-party framework. So for me, it starts with those monthly SDK releases. What can we get in there? How soon can we get it done there? And then building Zoom ISO against that. So now that we have it in the SDK, that's something that I, I'm willing to look at. But anybody now who's developing solutions based on Zoom raw data has access to that feature as well. So it takes us a little longer to do it that way, but I think it's better for the whole industry because that means that these ideas are not just going into one product, they're going into the whole platform. Next question. Next question in from Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. My enterprise account is up for renewal, and I'm reminded there is no service tier specific to production needs. In fact, my account reps don't really even understand how I use Zoom. Could there be a service tier specific to production? Go ahead, Andy. So Sam, Jonathan, and I are on the um, kind of the other side of the coin. We're not on sales, right? I'm on engineering and Sam and Jonathan are on services, right? And these are these are package and sales kind of questions. Um, so I, I'll be uh, brief in my response. But what I would say is I think that um, I would love to see uh, someone write an article or some information about what would go into the shopping basket or like a pro production kind of use case, right? Like what are the things about Zoom that you're using? Because it's it may be a little unexpected, right? We're, we're using rooms, right? Which, you know, originally wasn't conceived of as being a production node, right? It's a hybrid teleconferencing tool, right? Um, that maybe there are certain elements and events that you're using a lot of, and maybe there are others that you're using less of. It would be really interesting to hear, you know, how people are using the platform in this space because that's how Zoom becomes educated about some of those packages and bundles, right? The other thing I'll say is to... Um, 
this may not solve Greg's specific issue, but I think it's worth mentioning because it's new. We have a new license tier in the events category, the webinar and events category called Zoom Sessions. And Zoom Sessions is basically saying, give me all of the features, including the in-session features like backstage that we have on events licenses, but give them to me just for producing single events at a time. So single session events. So if you didn't need all the infrastructure of Zoom events, but you did want some of those in-session features, um, this is a sort of more of a focused license option that you can take advantage of. Again, it doesn't do, it doesn't have like all the Zoom room stuff in there and all the different pieces across all the different parts of the platform that you might use to produce an event. But it is movement, I think, in the right direction in terms of thinking about how to uh, focus the licensing in different areas. So sessions, I think, is, again, showing willingness to participate with the customer in this area. And I think that as, as you know, Zoom sales becomes more educated about where they see opportunities to do bundles and stuff like this, I would, again, I would give that feedback. Zoom is very receptive to it. Open tickets, open feature, you know, if feature requests, if you have them. And uh Talk, of course, to your sales reps if you have those and let them know that this is something that you want, but let them know specifically what things would go into that. And, um, I, you know, I think that's that's how we move forward with something like this. We'll keep focusing on capabilities and great services, but um, the way it gets packaged together, that's an area that I think the customer can lead. Next question. From Mickey Makachor from the Philippines, how does one pull a screen share audio, isolated audio feed with Zoom ISO? Yep. So again, this is one of those things that we're still looking at um, the best way to do that. And it has to go into the developer platform first. Um, I would look at uh, Zoom Rooms. I'm not sure if Zoom Rooms does the isolated share audio, but it might be something interesting to check out. Um, it might be interesting to look at rooms for the uh, shared audio as well. A lot of improvements were made to rooms recently uh, around like Christmas time. We added persistent output mode, which allows the incoming video to be scaled to a standard. Um, so your output isn't necessarily bouncing around. If your input signal is bouncing around, that's great for recording files, not having to segment them in between changes and things like that. Um, so there is a lot coming into the Rooms product. We are upgrading it very, very often with production features. Um, so uh, again, that, that could be another solution if your use case uh, is something that you don't see with ISO. Well, go check in rooms and see if it makes sense there. The platform is really what's important here. For me, it's not so much that, you know, one product has to have um, uh, the responsibility of doing everything. It's that different things can do what they're best at and uh, they can take time in getting there in the right form factor. So again, with with ISO, the focus is on up-leveling the developer platform first and then improving the product. With rooms, it's very much, all right, what can we do to make this product as strong as possible and focusing on it from that perspective. Um, so again, they, they build a healthy ecosystem of tools that work together. Um, and, but for right now, this is something I'm interested in doing with ISO, but I want to figure out how to do it for everybody first and then how to put it in the ISO product. Next question. From Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Chris asked, is there any way to pull Zoom chat externally off a client? I'm trying to figure out a way to pull single chat items rather than just scrape the whole chat window. Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, so this is where Zoom OSE is uh, is the tool that I would reach to, um, and that one would give me the ability to join up to the call with my Zoom OSE instance, and then receive messages for every single chat as it's coming in, and then choose what I want to do with it. Uh, and I'm going to have Jonathan actually dive in a little bit deeper on um, some of the ways that we've used this here. But our event services team, you saw this uh, in play on Zoomtopia and on some other recent events, where we were pulling each of those chats in and then rendering them into an on-screen graphic and putting it on screen, looking the way we wanted it to with the right motion, with the right fonts and colors and boxes and framing and, and whatnot. 
Um, we also have ways of doing that where, uh, you know, you could bring in the messages and then use them uh, to generate graphics. Actually, Jonathan and I were talking this morning about one that was going to be pulling it in and then using it um, to render it out onto a web page that could be pulled into OBS. So it would just be like you guys are doing the questions today. Um, where it's pulling those chat messages out and a operator is able to take and highlight them or pop them up in whatever rules and fashion, whatever processing you want to do. But Zoom OSC is, is definitely the heart. Uh, from there, Jonathan, if you want to kind of expand on that. There you go, Jonathan. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Thank you. Um, yeah, like Sam said, it begins with Zoom OSC. And I can really break it down into the three main components to this because this is really exciting use case. Um, so starting with Zoom OSC, you need to think about um, not just what chat messages are coming out, but what context will create those chat messages. So when Zoom OSC joins a meeting or a webinar, um, it's able to send the chat outputs from users that it's subscribed to, but specifically what chat messages it, it has visibility to. So a DM, it has visibility to. Uh, if it's a host or a panelist, it can see the host and panelists in addition to the attendees. So you have to make sure you place the bot in the right location to be able to pull out the correct chat and send that as messages. The second step is to have some sort of translation layer or some sort of ability to parse those incoming OSE messages, extract out the username and the chat message. Um, if you need to convert it to an HTTP TTP or another protocol, you can do that at this stage. And then the third step is to render that output to your screen. Um, we've used a few different programs for this. We've done uh, JavaScript for web page rendering. Um, you could send it to vMix and have vMix do it using its built-in titler. You could use a program like Isadora to completely custom build the graphic and the overlay natively in app, and then send that as an overlay or a layer output. Um, but I just wanted to clarify those three stages, those three steps to creating this, uh, this graphic. Go ahead, Andy. And I was going to say that there's uh, a couple of tools that can help you move between those different stages as well. Like Jonas has a really great HTTP proxy, if you will, for OSC messages um, that's designed to be natively compatible with H2R graphics and GT title from vMix. So if you uh, if your goal, your end result is that you want to have something like in a vMix lower third, you can go grab the proxy paired up with Zoom OSC, and now that'll just natively start pushing content into GT title. And then uh, John Barker put a feature in that specifically looks for this data on his side in H2R graphics. So you can actually have a, a, a product, product, product chain without any custom development in the middle where you can go grab Zoom OSC, the product, the chat proxy, the product, and then H2R graphics. Uh, and that they can all interact with each other to create an overlay system without having to do anything custom if you don't want to. But as Jonathan said, you can, of course, go out to a media server. That's the beauty of open sound control, right, is that it's compatible with all sorts of different use cases. That's why we built against that protocol. It's translatable into other things, and it's useful in many different situations. So you can make custom graphics. You can use different graphics managers. There's an ecosystem of both first-party and third-party things, as well as things that the services team is building, that my team is building. So there's a lot of ways to do it. But yeah, Zoom OSC uh, is definitely the foundation for a lot of chat tools and more to come with it. As you've seen, Zoom's own chat in meeting chat has changed a lot recently. You now have threaded replies, you have reactions and things like that. We're definitely looking at how to leverage some of those new advanced features uh, through the OSC interface as well. Next question. Sean Dunn is asking, any update on Zoom ISO coming soon to address issues with screen sharing? Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, so a couple of things on this. Uh, we are aware of it. Uh, thanks for people who have sent in different reports, situations, both success and failures. We do you know, try to reach out to people, say, hey, is it working for you? And sometimes we hear yes, sometimes we hear no. And that helps us identify what the pattern is. Um, we think that the pattern mostly has to do with um, how many feeds people are pulling into their client at once and what Zoom's limits are around that. And we're looking to alleviate those. Um, so that's been an interesting data point for us. We'll fix it in the next release. Uh, it's probably going to involve an SDK change as well. 
Um, but the next uh, Zoom ISO release should have a fix for that. Uh, I don't know exactly when we'll do that release, but it is something we're looking at. And of course, if you've opened a ticket with us about it, we'll get you beta access, early access to confirm before we do the release that it works for you. Um, a couple of steps that you can do in the meantime is uh, disabling and enabling outputs. You can do that at the engine level, or you can do that with the enable tick box on certain feeds. Um, and that can help you just, you know, pop the video loss mode for a second, which can be freeze or whatever it is, and then re-enable the engine. And uh, generally that can get you restarted again, depending on how many outputs you're dealing with. Um, but that's kind of a workaround right now. Keep engaging with the support team on this. We'll make sure that we get you something that fixes that up. In the meantime, of course, you have other options you can, um, uh, while well, the windows that the Zoom client gives you, you can scrape with, um, you know, like a like a scan converter uh, if you don't want to make the outputs inside of ISO itself. Or you can do something like um, use Zoom Rooms, which can give you the outputs as well. So there's an ecosystem around these features. So you're not you're not totally shut out from the ability to get the shared content. Uh, you just might want to think about other ways to supplement Zoom ISO in the meantime while we work on getting that piece of that feature working for you. Next question. Greg Gibson in Washington, D.C. asking, can you explain high bandwidth mode and how its absence in Zoom Rooms affects NDI pins? Go to ending. This is one of the key differences between Zoom ISO and Zoom Rooms at this time. And uh, so high bandwidth mode allows up to 100 megabit per second downlink between the Zoom cloud and the Zoom ISO client. Uh, the average Zoom 1080p feed is 4 to 6 megabit per second. So if you do the math, 6 by 16 is 96. That puts us just under the 100 megabit cap. So you should expect from Zoom ISO to be able to do 16 outputs at 1080p. We recently published a, uh, a web page that goes through all the performance uh, of that on different pieces of Apple Silicon. Uh, the M2 stuff obviously needs to be benchmarked now that we have those available, but we'll update that website uh, we also show a graph of real bandwidth consumption versus projected based on the math, where you can see uh, information about how we do as we add more outputs. How does that affect our bandwidth consumption? So that's how it works in ISO. With rooms, that limit is 24 megabit per second. So you're sharing, you have 12 outputs that you can create, but you're sharing participant data among them, right? So uh, you're not going to be able to do 12 1080p outputs, even if you have the CPU headroom to do that. So you're going to have to budget that 24 megabit among the NDI outputs uh, that you have um, and potentially lower the resolution on some of them or or use multiple rooms or stagger them in a different way. Um, this is part of the differentiation between the products at this time. So it's important to keep that in mind just because it says 12 outputs are available in the room. It doesn't change the overall uh, downlink limit. Only Zoom ISO has the uh, 100 megabit downlink with high bandwidth mode at this time. Next question. David Brady from New York, New York, and here on our panel. After trying multiple mics and cameras, the list of devices grows regardless of device being present. Are there any means to prune and or rename devices? Mac and PC, please. Good, Andy. So my guess, and uh, it is a guess, so we'll have to see you know, whether or not this solves it for you, is that um, some of these devices have uh, software-level drivers. So they're either installing an entry in a plist file, or they're actually uh, their own application that's showing up on the system. And even when the device isn't present, because that software has an entry for them there, Zoom is seeing that device is being available to the system. So sometimes, like for an example of this would be like, um, I think either uh, Ecamm's virtual uh, camera or like OBS virtual camera, those show up even if the attached things aren't connected. But there are some like configuration studios for cameras like I know Logitech does this with one of their configuration suites where they actually create in software a camera that they then pass the physical camera from to that. And that you can 
the telltale sign of a lot of these is if you select it, you either get like black or you get a logo of the vendor. Um, that means that there's some driver running in the background. So the best thing to do there is to go look at the drivers that you have installed, uninstall the ones for the devices that you're not using or uninstall the software that supports them. Make sure the plist entries are also gone if you're on Mac OS and then reboot the client and try again uh, and see if that gets you there. My guess is that it's probably some leftover stuff in the software layer. Next question. Mike Muddy Schlegel from Raleigh, North Carolina. Mike asks, with a Zoom ISO Pro license and plenty of available bandwidth, is anything else needed for high bandwidth mode? Is there a setting to turn on or will it go into high bandwidth mode automatically? And how do you verify? Will it show in statistics? Go ahead, Andy. So a couple of things that you should do here to verify that you're in this situation. So there's no flags or special type of meetings or anything that you have to do to get high bandwidth mode in a main session. If you're in a breakout room, though, you need to have the breakout 100, BO100 OP flag set for breakout rooms. Now, my understanding, and I could be wrong about this, so grain of salt, but I believe last weekend we changed the default or we'll be changing it soon. We've said that we're going to look at this um, for uh, uh, the BO100 as a default. But for now, to be extra sure, you should go in and ask and make sure that you have uh, BO100 applied. Um so that's uh, that's the only extra caveat for using it in a breakout room. Now, how do you how do you verify this? Um, the best thing to do is to look at the statistics page inside of Zoom ISO. So the regular Zoom statistics, don't worry about that. But look at the stats that you see on the incoming uh, resolution and frame rate for each of your inputs. Um, now, a couple of things about this: if you immediately go in to create sixteen outputs, you might see them at super low resolution and low frame rate, and that can that can be the case for about thirty to forty five seconds while we warm them all up and step them all up to 1080p. But after about a minute, everything should be at the target resolution if the sender is capable of doing it. So the way I typically would debug resolution is first make sure that the sender has the capability and the network and all that stuff that they need to do their uplink. Again, I would recommend for 1080p, try to have at least 10 megabit per second on the uplink side for the home network. Um, Zoom is going to take about six of that in the worst case. And then there's other traffic that might eat up the four. So check that. Make sure that, you know, if you're in a breakout room, you've got the BO100 to flag set or you're in a main session. Make sure that 1080p is both enabled at the account level and enabled for the meeting uh, under your meeting settings so that we actually can receive that resolution. And then look in ISO's receiving statistics. Give it about a minute to warm up, if you will, uh, especially if you, again, that that's most evident if you create a ton of outputs at once and assign everybody by going to like the tick boxes and click, 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 click all the way down the list. And you create a bunch of outputs at once. It takes time for Zoom to warm up how much uh, bandwidth it's going to send you. So uh, check in, you know, a minute, 90 seconds later and make sure that everything's stabilized, of course. But those are the procedures that I go through to make sure it's working. And for our our, our producers, uh, I, I just want to say that we're probably not going to get to all the questions. So you want to pay a lot of attention to the voting. <laughs> so, uh, you know, definitely look at the questions out there. We're not going to get to them all by, by the end of the hour. So um, so definitely start throwing those votes in and moving those questions around on your own so that we can uh, make sure we get the ones that are most important. Let's go to the next question. Greg Gibson, Washington, D.C., asking any chance of a companion module for Zoom Room NDI? Go ahead, Andy. Again, one of the key differentiators between the Room product and the Zoom ISO product is the OSC interface, which is the foundation for uh, our companion module. I know that the, the next question has more on the companion module, so I'll go into that in a second, but I will say that for now, uh, this is a differentiator. You're gonna use the ZRC or the web ZRC to control the room, and you're gonna, you may use something like companion or the built-in UI to control ISO. 
Um, there's a lot of, uh, I, I definitely understand the desire to break it out to peripheral. That's why in the product that we move the fastest on, we have a really robust companion module. So I totally understand uh, the desire to have that. Um, but there are infrastructural changes that would be required to do something like that. Um, and uh, so I definitely hear you on it. Um, the best way to, if that is your use case, the best way um, to uh, to do that is to um, to go ahead and use Zoom ISO at this point. Uh, that's the fastest solution for you right now. Next question. Mike Muddy Schlegel, Raleigh, North Carolina is back. Can you share anything about the status of the Zoom ISO companion module? Are you pushing a new beta build frequently? And I love the new selection flow, but the companion module hasn't reliable updated meeting attendees for me. Go ahead, Andy. So the companion module is getting updated basically every single day. And the reason um, that it's in this state is that Companion has decided to move from their 2.4 version, which was their previous stable, into their new version, which is version 3, which is a complete rewrite of the back end of Companion. So now, not only is Companion's core changed in a very significant way, all of the modules that are used with Companion need to be rewritten to be compatible with the new standard. So we are currently engaged with the companion core team. Jeffrey Davids is an awesome developer who's contracted with Zoom to build our companion module, and he's been working on it since the summer. He originally did a bunch of stuff uh, on the 2.4 branch, and now it's being rewritten for the version 3 branch. So when you download the companion module, at the very, very top of the page, it says very clearly when you launch it, do not use version 3 in production. Version 3 is being completely rewritten. So if you're seeing issues with missing attendees or different things with the flow aren't right or whatever, it's all it's all in beta. It's all being developed. Uh, now, the companion team is moving very fast. We're moving very fast to update our architecture to be compatible with it. But really, the the what I would say about the current state of companion is to test your exact through line. If that's working, okay, maybe okay to do that. Certainly use it as an opportunity to learn where we're going with the module, where companion is going. If that's something that's important to you, it's a great learning tool. Um, if you need a more stable version of it, obviously the stable release in 2.4.1, which doesn't have all of our bells and whistles and has older versions of our modules in it, is probably the place to go. That's sort of a what I would call like a stability island. Uh, there's certain things that are there that make sense. They all kind of lined up, but they're behind on a feature side. If you want to see the latest, especially with Zoom ISO. So the Zoom ISO stuff uh, really isn't very mature in the 2.4.1. The Zoom OSC stuff is um, in the version 3 this whole workflow of selections is going to apply to outputs. So just like you can take participants and you can assign them to groups, and then you can apply actions to the groups, our outputs are going to be selectable and multi-selectable and group assignable. So I could say outputs one, three, five, seven are going to be for my, you know, three iMag displays. I'm going to assign them to a group called iMag, and then I'm going to select panel one, assign them to group one, and then I'm going to hit group one and iMag apply, and it's going to put them on my outputs, right? And then I'm going to put panel two apply outputs, right? So there's a lot of power in the new workflow of selection, multi-selection, and groups. Uh, Jeff Widgren's been doing a really interesting series in the Zoom Test Kitchen where he's deep diving into this. What are the possibilities? What are the workflows? So you can check that out today, or you can see his episode last week that covers some of this stuff. Um, it's an active area of development, but it is external to Zoom. Just to say again that this is a project that you know, while we are engaged with companion core team, we are, uh, you know, certainly uh, invested in the development of this module and and the effort that goes into it. Um, it is ultimately an open source project controlled by BitFocus and issues with those modules are going to eventually have to be uh, request to the companion core team. 
um, because it is an open source project and we're there trying to put our mark on it right now. But eventually we're going to get the module into a state that we're happy with and it's going to be turned over to everybody else to open their pull requests and feature changes and things like that, just like every other module on Companion. So it's very rare to, that the vendors involved at this level to try to craft it. We feel like we need to do that to accelerate it. Um, but uh, And that's what we're doing right now to try to make sure that version 3 gets off the ground. But it is um, it, it is an open source project and there are things to watch out for there. And so opening pull requests, communicating with the Companion core team is good practice in addition to communicating with us while we're working on it. Let's go to the next question. Kenneth Jones in Seattle, Washington, asking, when a person moves from a breakout room, we still see a not joined remark in that room. What is the purpose of the not joined note? Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, so uh, what I'm understanding from this scenario is that I have taken someone, assigned them to a breakout room. They maybe have actually, in this case, they've joined it and then stepped back to the main session. So they step back out of the breakout rooms, which is a setting that I can prevent them from doing if I'd like to. But in this case, I haven't. They step back out. And so now if I'm looking at the managed participants uh, in the breakout rooms there, it's going to show that they are not joined because they are currently not joined. They are not in that breakout that they are still assigned to uh, until I change that assignment. So um, that is just a, a nomenclature. It doesn't mean that they haven't joined. It means that they are not currently joined. Next question. Jonas Dattel from Stuttgart, Germany, asking, Sam, I saw your post about patent applications that have been filled by you and your team. Any updates on these? And will that prevent outside productions from accessing tools like chat overlay, companion meetings without event service? Go ahead, Sam. Yeah, so I don't have a whole lot to say about that because I am not a lawyer and I had a lot of lawyers involved with that to uh, help us along that process. But uh, it was related to the the chat bridging and the chat overlay tools. And uh, in my experience, it I don't know that I think it applies to a services-based model of people helping work on uh, chat apps using Zoom OSC and things like that with their productions and their events uh, versus larger product and SaaS services. Go ahead, Andy. Yeah, again, um, not a lawyer, but uh, the <laughs> patents typically regard like uh, specific works or ideas, right? But not service models or things like that or business models. Um, and again, if we wanted things to be super proprietary, we wouldn't have used open sound control as the protocol for <laughs> Zoom OSC. So and anybody can go make the very same chat app that we use with Zoomtopia. There's nothing, there's nothing that is preventing somebody um, from like a licensing level from going and doing exactly what was done. It's just a matter of putting in the time and the effort to build uh, the exact interface and flow that you want. Um, so I don't think that... Um, Again, I think the purpose of Zoom OSC is openness and compatibility with everything and anything so people can build whatever they want, as Jonas has done with the chat proxy and other tools. Um, so I think that you know our stance on that hasn't changed. We want Zoom OSC to be highly compatible with workflows. We want people to be building interesting tools. And what Event Services has done is show an example of when somebody actually you know, pays attention to the guidance and actually goes and develops something, what they're capable of. And it's awesome to see that those tools are highly demanded, but anybody could go do that. And, and this should be a signal, you know, a flare to everybody that, hey, People are really interested in these types of tools. So if you are a developer, this is a great way to build some adjacent value to the Zoom platform and uh, potentially build a business model for yourself. So there's definitely, and we have open foundations for all of that stuff. Next question. Simon Ray from Midlands, UK. How do you move a Zoom OSC or Zoom ISO license from one machine to another? Go Jonathan. 
Yeah, so two ways to do this. Uh, the simple way is to, uh, in the first application, just go ahead and deactivate that license within the app. And then you can use the second system to reactivate using the same license key. That will effectively uh, initiate the transfer. Nothing more complicated than that. The second way is to uh, reach out to Liminal Support, uh, and they can set you up with a online license portal so you can manage all of your licenses remotely, and you can deactivate from that system, transfer licenses, and so on. But it's a very straightforward system, and it's based on uh, just checking all the systems that are available and how many licenses, how many seats you have available, and making sure that it's first come, first serve for those systems that have those licenses. Next question. Chris Widener from Lafayette, Indiana. Is there any simple way to deploy the web client as a white label product to a website? Go ahead, Andy. The best way to do this, uh, as far as like a white labeling is concerned, is our video SDK product, which is Zoom's technology white labeled for developers to make customized tools. There is a web version of the video SDK. And again, the video SDK and the meeting SDK, the main difference between them is that the meeting SDK builds a Zoom client that connects to Zoom meetings, Zoom webinars, blah, blah, blah. Whereas the video SDK is our transport technology and it's going to be more similar to things like IzzyCast, which uses the video SDK. So if uh, like IzzyCast doesn't connect to meetings and webinars, IzzyCast just uses Zoom's backend infrastructure to do highly customized transport. So if you are looking to build a custom bespoke web experience, the video SDK is an avenue by which you can use our technology without having to be like a Zoom license holder and all that other stuff. So we can slip more into the background. So the video SDK is a great starting point. It's part of our developer platform. Next question. Mike Muddy Schlegel from Raleigh, North Carolina. Again, he's here with the question. I'm curious if anyone else has had stability issues with the Zoom OSC client on a PC. I've had Zoom OSC client crash multiple times while producing client events, which is not great. Any development underway for the second or for the Zoom OSC client on a PC? Go ahead, Andy. So a couple of things to look at there. First, make sure you're on the latest version, which I think is 4.1.1, um, which has a bunch of fixes in it for various issues. Um, so that's always just a good rule of thumb. Are you on the latest copy? And, and double check that for us. Um, the second thing that you should do is you should look at the Windows logs and see, you know, is anything else interfering with the process? Are you thermally constrained? You know, are there other things that could be going on in the background? Is it connectivity? Are there things that are getting in the way? The third thing I'd look at is the sidecar window that you have inside of Zoom OSC, which shows you the last command that was executed. Um, so you can see, hey, was there anything going on at this time that might have been a problem for me or the way I'm set up? Or was there, you know, what was going on there? And then I would go ahead and reach out to support. Um, so if you are, we're not, we're not seeing like, you know, tons of reports about this, but I'm not saying it's not possible that there is something wrong. And if there is, the best thing to do is to reach out to us. We'll get you a beta build. We'll collect logs. We'll explain, you know, here's what's going on. Help us understand your use case. Um, if there's anything that we can guide you from or get you uh, early access to things that we're going to ship as a fix, that's that's the best way to start. Uh, office hours, obviously a great place to discuss, hey, is anybody else seeing this or are there issues here? But ultimately, if you really want an answer from us or you need a fix, uh, the best thing to do is to send an email to info at liminalet.com and our team will get back to you and, and try to work to the root cause of the issue. But I would always make sure that if this has been an ongoing issue, uh, we definitely, you know, you don't don't hesitate to email us. Reach out right away. First issue, first time the issue shows up, send us an email so that we can uh, get to it right away and you don't have to be dealing with it. Um, so those are the things I would suggest trying. Next question. Jesse Mills in San Francisco Bay Area asking multiple channel audio interface input selection is awesome. Wonder if this can be controlled with a keyboard command. Go ahead, Andy. 
not with the not with the clients built-in features. Um, I don't think it was really something that we imagined that people were going to jockey in real time from a keyboard or something like that. It's kind of like a set and forget. Um, so I don't think that you'll see it as keyboard shortcuts. But again, there's other tools in the tool belt that can help you um, set this up, such as loopback, right, which could be tied out to external things. I think they have other commands that can be used there. So if you're going to do something really advanced with audio where you need to be changing what channels are being mapped into your mic in real time, uh, that might be a use case for loopback versus for our Zoom feature, which is really focused on just like if you have, you know, some sort of more advanced audio device attached to Zoom, but you always want Zoom to be doing a certain thing with it. This is how you now tell it to do that. Next question. And it's from Zach Phillips in Philadelphia. Zach says, is there a clever or hopefully not so clever way to pass a Zoom link password display name into companion Zoom OSC connection without direct access to the machine running Zoom OSC? Thank you for all you do. It literally makes my business possible. Uh, Andy? That's really great to hear. Thank you for saying that. I'm happy that we're supporting you. Um, I would check out um, companion satellite as one possibility. Uh, which would let you uh, run the Stream Deck in a different network than uh, or a different subnet than where you're running uh, your Zoom OSC. The other thing is that you know OSC is a network-based protocol, so if you have uh, robust solutions for tunneling uh, your network traffic from one location to another, that could be another way of doing this. Uh, if you use a VPN, um, do be do take care to check the quality of that connection. Uh, OSC packets are small. Uh, and sometimes they get lost on their way through a VPN or from more complex network infrastructure. Um, so do make sure that, uh, you know, you have a robust VPN connection, uh, ideally something that has, you know, checks and redundancies um, to make sure that the data travels. Um, so that is something to to spend a little effort to look into. We have had people do it successfully. You've also had some horror stories. Um, but yeah, companion satellites, pretty interesting. If I understand your question correctly, that might be the easiest solution for what you're trying to do. Next question. Jonas Dato from Stuttgart, Germany. Is there a way to get the profile picture of a user from Zoom OSC to show it in a chat graphics? Go ahead, Andy. So not in Zoom OSC, but the Zoom APIs actually have an API endpoint for getting a user's profile picture. Um, so you should look at those API endpoints and see. Um, and there could be a. I don't know this. I don't know this for sure, but I think there may be a way for. Zoom OSC to give you some of the params that you need for the API request to get the image. So maybe there's some interoperability there, but um, this is also a you know a use case for like a an OAuth uh, SDK marketplace or OAuth API marketplace app. Next question. Henry Ramos in Yonkers, New York. For someone selling a multi-session course via Zoom, what popular platforms to use that handle billing and sending Zoom links? Uh, Eventbrite works for single events, but selling weekly lessons. Any ideas there? Well, I mean, we have our Zoom events product, uh, which is sort of our solution for ticketed or uh, build or multi-session solutions. Um, that's probably as far as we can go right now in terms of, you know, we're going to recommend our, our <laughs> events product for yeah. that case. A lot of opportunity there. I, I tried to sign up for the Final Cut user group earlier this week. I couldn't, I got, I signed up an event, but I couldn't actually find my way to the show. <laughs> like I couldn't, like I couldn't find, a, no one sent me a link. It said you could print out a ticket. It was like, it was a complete disaster. So, uh, so I think there's a lot of, a lot of opportunity there. Go ahead, Sam. Uh, I was just going to mention that I think uh, for Henry here, I think I understand the limitation and that has to do with its weekly lessons. So how many recurrences there are. Uh, and I don't think there. Uh, there may not be a way to set that up in Zoom events, whereas you have 
the multi-conference day, six-day limitation, or you have uh, individual sessions. But when it comes to recurring with one single ticket, it can get a little bit challenging. Um, and that's where like, I, the slight plug for Zoom events is absolutely the best way to have secure monetization of Zoom links. Like It's going to trump any other opportunities you have with APIs and registration. But there are opportunities with webinar uh, registration and APIs. And so if you check out our app marketplace and start looking at all the different ones that have integrations built with our webinar registrations APIs, um, that's going to give you a good uh, a good shopping place to go find your your next platform to handle that. Next question. Dan Goldstein, White Plains, New York, asking, what is the relationship between Zoom OSC and Companion from a high level? What other software-hardware combos can be utilized for Zoom OSC-managed meetings? Go ahead, Andy. So again, Zoom OSC, that OSC component stands for Open Sound Control, which is a protocol that's used in the entertainment and production and broadcast industries for uh, having multiple software applications speak to each other or hardware and software interact with each other. So in this case, Companion is listening to the information coming from Zoom OSC and sending it commands. It's a bi-directional link using our open sound control protocol, which we have an open API for an API that we publish the specification for. And so companion is calling those commands and it's one of many possible things that can uh, be compatible with OSC. Uh, what's nice about companion is again, it, it supports bi-directional and it supports presets, which makes it really popular as a pairing option. And of course it breaks out to the stream deck. So, you know, who doesn't like that? But there are other things you could do certainly for different use cases. QLab has a really robust integration with um, Zoom OSC right now, where you can literally go in and say, I want to make a queue for Zoom OSC. And you can just hit through drop down list and it'll automatically build the command for you in the background. And that becomes a queue in QLab. Um, Isadora, another popular pairing. Isadora's got a leg up in the sense that it has the bi directional connection. So with QLab, you're not really doing back and forth with Zoom. You're really just telling it, I want to do this now. Now I want to do this next. With Isadora, you can do basically anything you want to do with Zoom OSC because uh, the conversation can go back and forth. Um, Universe Control is another one that has a bi-directional link. It has its own module that can connect to Zoom OSC. And with simple drag and drop things, you can quickly build a custom user interface that works with it. Um, there's all sorts of things that speak this protocol and are natively compatible, some of which have specific integrations for Zoom OSC. But if any, any device that you're using that has open sound control support or OSC support, you could also use that with Zoom OSC. Go, Jonathan. Yeah, I definitely um, back anything Andy's saying about Universe, Companion, Scarhoy, all those different uh, integrations that have been built out natively. If you're looking to do something more custom with OSC, just a tip is uh, understanding how the participant structure works is important. So being able to understand how do you get that data from Zoom OSC, parse it to understand how many participants are in the meeting and how to target them directly, and then apply actions based on that. Once you understand that structure, you can build out your custom integrations based on that, uh, even if there's no OSC module for that specific piece of software or hardware. Next question. Next question in from Jason Bache in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Is the MSI version of Zoom for Mac OS the same as Zoom for IT admins? Go ahead, Andy. I'm not sure precisely if it's the same, um, but I know that uh, this is typically the installer that an IT admin would use in an enterprise setting to manage what version is across all their settings and whether the organizational settings have applied. So I'm not sure that it's uh, precisely the same as uh, the version that we're speaking about, but that is something to look at. Next question. Fred Eric Eckert in Bad Herpenon, Germany. How far is the integration of Zoom OSE in the Scarhoy Blue Pill Reactor environment? Go ahead, Andy. So that's something that Scarhoy manages, and they announced it at 
NAB last year, then they showed a working version of it at IBC in the fall. Um, so you'll have to, and I believe there is a version of it that is released already. So um, depending on um, what version you're on or what specific devices they're using, and Jonathan might be able to help jog my memory on exactly what parts they're supporting, but uh, I do believe there's some version of it out there in the wild. Um, and then I know that they're continuing to look at, okay, well, now that we have all these new commands for ISO, what can we do with that? Um, they showed an ISO integration at the booth. I don't know if that's been released yet, but again, open protocol. And what was so cool about the Scarhoy working relationship is that it proved the model of our protocol, which was that I didn't, you know, we didn't have to have a bunch of developers sit down with Scarhoy for weeks and weeks and weeks and build a proprietary connection to their product. They can now just at their own discretion, just decide what they're going to pick up and what they're not. And so if user feedback can help motivate them to do certain things, they have all the technical capabilities they need to be able to do it. They don't necessarily need us in order to be able to do something because everything is published and they understand it well. Last question. From Jonas Dottel in Stuttgart, Germany, are we ever going to see an update to Streamweaver again? Andy? So the um, uh, what we've done with Streamweaver is we've, uh, worked with Troikatronics to bring all the technology into IzzyCast. So IzzyCast is the successor to Streamweaver. It's the future of those ideas. So remote lighting control, tunneling of certain types of traffic information, being able to now extend that into the realm of audio and video transmission as well, which was the original goal for Streamweaver. Um, the, uh, it, the Streamweaver story, just to recap really briefly, is that we wanted to build a system for getting isolated audio and video as well as being able to do data transport and we couldn't do it with zoom so we started looking at okay well what would it take for us to roll our own version of this and do it outside of zoom this was you know 2020 right after we started liminal so this was the first kind of venture into that that we did and so we were going to try to build our whole like remote contribution system entirely from scratch using uh srt as a big part of the backhaul what we found, though, was that Zoom was so rapidly accelerating its capabilities that we felt that it was better to build our tools on top of the Zoom platform specifically. Uh, the exception was really the data, which we figured could actually be really robustly done through SRT. But now that we have something called Command Channel, Command Channel is really the thing that comes from Streamweaver and is now part of our video SDK, the ability to stream data through the video SDK. So again, it's this idea that the the asset purchase of Liminal wasn't always about the products themselves. It was about the technology, up-leveling Zoom core technology, like our video SDK with some of those capabilities and then extending that out to partners. So this is really the goal of that product is now being lived on through Streamweaver, uh, through uh, IzzyCast. So Streamweaver's goals are kind of being brought forward and exceeded uh, through IzzyCast. So we're really excited about that. That's where you're going to find the solutions to what that product was going to do or what it had done in the past. It's going to be dramatically exceeded by IzzyCast. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a really exciting release. Andy, Jonathan, Sam, so great to have you guys here. It just it really makes a huge difference. I always feel like when you when you guys show up, it's like we're just drinking from a fire hose of all the things that we've kind of built up. Uh, we're trying to figure out and a lot of people trying to, and we just get it solved. So, uh, so we really, really, really appreciate your time. Uh, hopefully we'll get to get you, have you back regularly all the way through 2023 uh, to keep us uh, moving forward. But, um, but thank you so much for, for spending a little time with us. Always good to be here. Thanks so much again for the invitation. Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, thanks to our producers for all the great questions, keeping this all moving forward. Uh, thanks to the panelists. We can't do this without you. And thanks to the incredible crew on the back end who every day, seven days a week, make sure that this show gets off the ground and uh, and 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 takes some miles. Today, we had 123,000 miles that we covered, 198,000 kilometers. And more importantly, 1.119 
billion bananas for scale. So that's, that's how, so, so anyway, so we've covered a lot of ground here today and, uh, and uh, we have education, of course, next week uh, on, I'm sorry, on tomorrow. And of course, on Sunday, we'll be doing the more introspective. If you have questions about uh, office hours or philosophical questions about our industry or all those other things, Sunday's the day to do that. So uh, we'll see you then. And until then, we're going to uh, jump into after hours. Look at the event chat I posted the HDR test. It's interesting. Not perfect, but interesting. HDR 4K. It's a lot of bananas. There's so many, so many bananas. Five times around the earth at nodes. That's the equivalent. I still wow. HDR bananas, though. That's what I want to know. There's <laughs> a lot of slippage. The brown spots are so much more sharp. See you guys. Take care. See you in the kitchen.